0: Canon Films,
1: the home of high-powered, high-voltage, motion picture entertainment. With the screen's biggest spectacles, brightest stars, and boldest lineup of explosive entertainment. We're taking motion picture excitement over the edge,
2: and your box office over the top.
1: Welcome back to another episode of ReConsinimation. I am John Diner. And I'm David Munchak. And this is the podcast where we take a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and my God, we have a fun one today, and we, we you know, David, there's so much so much stuff going on in the world that I felt like we really needed some fun, and uh, nothing yes. symbolizes fun better to me than the Canon Film Group.
0: The, oh, the Canon Films? That's, <laughs> that is your, uh, that's your bar of your, your measurement <laughs> of fun? Yeah, that's, okay. <laughs> I, I,
1: that's my, how I measure fun. I compare everything to Canon Films from the 80s. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I have to say I'm impressed
0: that you got me
1: into the studio. Uh,
0: you lured me in with, uh, with a, the promise of a pizza party, and then you locked the doors and said, it's time. We're doing the canon episode. So I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm here. I, I've got my pizza, so I'm ready.
1: That's usually how I lure you in anyway. So it worked <laughs> yeah, this time. That, that's how you get <laughs> but, uh, me to, to work. <laughs> yeah. But uh, not only is it going to be a fun episode, but it's going to be extra fun because we have a, a very, very special guest. That's right. The the man who has composed the theme song to this uh, this podcast It's E.K. Wimmer, host of uh, Laser Graves. Welcome, E.K. Hey, guys. How's it
2: going? (laughs) Good. Welcome, sir. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I am extremely excited to talk about canon films. (laughs) (laughs) I thought
1: when we started talking about this, I thought, you know, no one's going to know these movies better than my friend E.K., and he'd be perfect (laughs) to have on for this roundtable, you know, socially distant roundtable discussion. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah it'll be a tag team effort to work our way through this uh grouping of films that wow it's uh it's intense
0: <laughs> it's a long list i i got i i there's a lot to to talk about here and i you know i'm so glad you're here uh ek because uh you know you and johnny are 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 probably so well versed in this whole canon canon verse um that uh I, i'm really I, i'm looking forward to just uh I'm not quite a, a, a bystander or on the sidelines here, but you guys w- know way more about these, so this will be a lot of fun to like dive deep, dive into the you know the '80s canon uh, oeuvre. So uh, thank God you're here. Thank you for coming.
2: <laughs> well, hopefully I can be of assistance because. Um... Some of these films are a little interesting to talk about. I'll say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And
1: I think some of them you've actually covered on on your show as well, right? Yeah, quite
2: a few, actually. I was surprised. You know, um, some of them are very obvious canon films, and then some are canon distributed them, but they weren't actually produced by canon, which we'll talk about later. And there's a few of those as well. So um, I think I've always been aware of canon films, but sometimes until you do a real deep dive and you're forced to look into their entire body of work you're not maybe as aware of how diverse their selections were you know and it's i was shocked i mean some of the films we've even covered i didn't know were put out by canon so um, yeah. yeah we've covered quite a few and as those come up I'll let you know if anybody's interested in listening to those back episodes
1: everyone should check out laser graves and we'll uh, we'll talk more about it as we cover those films but um for those that uh, are maybe new to our show, too, do you want to just give them a quick, you know, tell them what Laser Graves is about real real fast?
2: Sure. Yeah. So my wife, uh, Mariah Rose, and I co-host a weekly podcast, uh, much like this one, where we discuss films. But ours focuses specifically on the 80s. We also do um, books and events and just various other things. So it's more just an 80s podcast, but we lean really heavy on films because we love movies and they're just a lot of fun to talk about. We cover all the genres, but our specialty is really horror and post-apocalyptic and sci-fi, anything really cheesy. Uh, We keep finding this issue of doing an episode and then finding out that Mystery Science Theater already did it. So that's if that gives you any level (laughs) of what what type of film we watch. But, yeah, we've been doing it for quite a while. We're about to come out with I don't know, we're up in the mid 70s, almost 80s. So uh, as far as number of episodes, we've been doing it for for a while now. And uh, we have a blast, you know, like you guys. It's just for the fun of it. It's for the love of cinema and for us, all things 80s. And. It's been it's been a real, real joy to do and kind of opened our eyes to movies that we would have normally never watched. But now we do for the sake of our podcast. So
1: it's cool. And it's funny with those kind of movies, sometimes there's a lot more to talk about than, you know, we've covered some big mainstream movies like Rocky and Die Hard. And it's like sometimes like you just love those movies and it's like there's not as much to like really bite into in a weird way.
2: Right. And I would say for us, we really don't do any mainstream movies. I mean, I would say we've done a couple. Terminator is probably the the most mainstream one we've ever done. We also did um, like Weekend at Bernie's and Legend. Mm -hmm. In my mind, that's a big movie because it had Tom Cruise in it. But what I found is it's a little debilitating for us because those are so adored and they're so researched and known already that there's not a lot to offer. And so we really get gravitate towards the stuff that um, maybe people haven't heard about. And where we found a lot of joy is people contacting us after an episode and saying, I want to look into that now. I'd never even heard about it. And I think that's really fun because it gives us a way to have a voice um, versus just repeating what's already been said over many years.
1: Mm -hmm. Hmm. yeah that's uh and and even of the mainstream ones you covered i I really enjoyed your witches of eastwick episode because that's (laughs) not one you hear talked about very often Uh,
2: yeah that's one i grew up with so i don't know if uh, that's a a well-liked movie but i really loved it growing up
0: do you think you guys will ever cover like say titanic i could probably get in on that one i I don't know if anyone's seen that
2: Took place in the 80s, oh, no. we would definitely do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's just the 80s. That's right. You can't
1: do yeah. it. <laughs> Speaking of uh, fun and uh, interesting movies, the, the Canon Film Group, uh, Canon Films, really uh, put a number of them together throughout the decade of the 80s. They were um, They were that once that logo came up in the beginning of a movie. It was like the symbol of like not quite excellence. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> that's it right there.
1: Yeah, that's perfect. It was like, you know, the, I've heard it said before, but it was like these guys had really good ideas, but they had they did not have good taste. So it was like, you know, uh, what could have been? Some of these were almost there, and that logo was like you you really knew when that 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 C logo came across. You really knew what you were getting into.
2: It was a real C-level film. I mean, I think that's what's funny (laughs) is that it, you know, and honestly, reflecting on this, especially with some of the movies we cover that are really, really bad, are the canon, now that we're years removed, I don't think the films were really as bad as they have the reputation of, but because they were bringing in larger stars at the time, I can see why these were immediately dismissed as, kind of the lower-budget films. But honestly, I don't know how you feel about it, but I, some of them are really just great films. I, I think they hold up, and I think they're fun.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, some of some of these I still love and I'll always love no matter what. But yeah, because they had names attached to a lot of them, the expectation was a lot higher. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, sometimes it was... They would almost pull the rug right out from under you. And, and we're going to go through... I think, guys, we should maybe go through, like, through the decade and just hit some kind of the films that stuck, stood out to us or, you know, some of their bigger films and we'll uh, break each of them down, you know, as as quickly as we can. We could be here for six or eight hours talking about canon films, but, uh, you know, we're not going to do that to everybody. Okay, yeah. The pizza's going to get cold. I can't.
0: Yeah,
2: that sounds fine. <laughs> the interns are going
1: to get impatient. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. um, but just to kind of quickly give a little background, uh, Canon Films was started in 1967, actually by a different, uh, different group of people, started by Dennis Friedland and, and Chris Dewey. And they you know made films, they made about, I think they made about 40 or 50 films from 67 to 79, none of which were really major, major successes. Um, and they ended up selling the company to Two Israeli cousins named Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus, and that's the real kind of the true essence of, of Canon. That's when it really became what it was and what we know it as.
2: Did you uh, get the number that they bought Canon for? I was kind of blown away by that, the, the price that they paid for uh, Canon.
1: Wasn't it like three hundred and fifty thousand or something? A
2: little bit higher. It was five hundred thousand is what I read, and I thought, man, just considering oh what they were spending on films to to buy over an entire uh, film company was I was surprised by that number, honestly.
1: Yeah, that's 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 a good deal. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, and there they got
0: the a... did they got the entire library with that? Like is that you know, it's it's they have canon films, they have the entire not that the you know, the early films are, are worth anything necessarily and in terms of of breadth and all that, but they got the whole thing, you know, soup to nuts?
1: As far as I know, they did. You know, film rights are always a little bit complicated or more than a little complicated, so I don't know if it included absolutely everything, but I believe that it included most of it. And the biggest movie that that I can recall from the early days, the pre-Golan Globus uh, era, was this movie called Joe with Peter Boyle. Mm Mm-hmm. Where he's mm. he's this you know really right wing guy who goes crazy and it doesn't go crazy but he starts he he's going after all the hippies and getting rid of them. It's kind of like Taxi Driver against the hippies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there's that. <laughs> he's an idol of mine. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Peter Boyle's great. This is a very dark version of Peter Boyle, though. Yeah. So you're Everybody Loves Raymond, which I know, David, you're, you have a bit of an obsession with. It's a different guy.
0: <laughs> oh, different. Oh,
1: okay. Got it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so they took over. And, you know, these guys are interesting to say the least. Um, they kind of handle different sides of the filmmaking. I mean, they're really, they were really in love with making movies. Not necessarily that they had the greatest ideas to back that love up, but it was this love and this passion for filmmaking that really drove them to, I mean, they, we'll get into it, but they put a tremendous amount of movies out, just the quantity of movies, and, and you could only really do that if you love, truly loved what you are doing, but, uh. They were, um, Golan was the, Menahem Golan was more of the creative vision of it. And he would direct some of the movies and, uh, you know, d- just drive the creative vision. Uh, Globus was more of the the money guy and the business end of it and would take care of things on that end. So, uh, but they were very, you know, hot tempered and volatile and, you know, at times very difficult to work with and, I know there was one story about one of the films that the that they had made before they came to the US where it was uh I don't know if it was something similar to Delta Force but it was dealing with a, on an airplane and the pilot you know they were doing this scene where the pilot had to you know take off over and over and over and he kept reshooting and the pilot wanted to take a break and uh, Menachem Golan just took a machine gun and held him at gunpoint and made him keep doing
2: it. <laughs> Yeah, they were quite the dynamic duo, and they had this knack. Their reputation rubbed a lot of people the wrong way in Hollywood because they weren't playing by the rules, but that's also what got them the success that they did get, because they could just spin a deal left and right, and they would front load everything with promises that never would maybe materialize or fake movie posters or whatever it was this guy signed on to do this movie which he never had and they would just wheel and deal and get what they wanted and I wanted to bring it back real quick when you were talking about the number of films they were putting out Uh, you had mentioned from 67 till 79 when the original canon was being run they'd only put out I don't remember what you said like um 60 films or something like that it wasn't
1: yeah, I thought it was like 40, something 40, like that. 40, yeah.
2: But. Well, just in 1986 alone, Canon had put out 43 films in one year alone to give you a sense of how <laughs> yeah. intense these guys were. They would just throw money or get people to throw money at every idea no matter what. I mean, it was pretty phenomenal.
1: Yeah, and yeah. I, you know, what amazed me is I don't know how they had the time to make that many movies in a year. I mean, most producers are very... And I, can only imagine that these guys were very hands-on with a lot of these films so literally how how they did that i i i don't know but it's a, an incredible really
0: it seems like the way they ran things there's, there's no negotiation it's like sort of like this is what we're doing this is how it is uh mo- and we're moving on i don't care we're not having any more discussions about it where i think in hollywood it's 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 discussion after discussion and collaboration and meetings and you know, fight and they're just like, well, they've got the money, they've got the clout, they got the power. What they say goes and everyone kind of rolls with it. I, that's my impression of how they ran things.
2: Uh absolutely. That they were a force. They basically drove a lot of filmmakers crazy because they would just come into the cutting room floor and say, "Yeah, you need to take that out. You need to shrink this down." And they just had even if they weren't there on set, they would have the final say and they really wanted to make it known that they had the final say. Um, It was it was pretty intense. I know that uh, Golan was the chairman of the board, officially their titles, and uh, Globus was the president. So that's how they kind of shook out in official roles. But I know I heard stories of them being right there, like editing the trailers alongside the filmmakers and making these calls when they they weren't even there to make the film to begin with. It was pretty, (laughs) pretty intense.
1: (laughs) Yeah well they were they were salesmen i mean they were, that's what they were good at like they would you know like you mentioned, they would develop a, a poster or an ad and use that to sell you know sell that to foreign investors that's how they'd raise the money and it was just they, they really wouldn't have a full story or a full idea. it was just sort of a concept and they'd get the money and then boom, like within a couple of weeks they 'd be shooting you know what
2: though' is crazy is that that is not. Unheard of. It's just that the level in which they did it was so unprecedented, like the, uh, you know, Friday the 13th, for example, that when that came out, they ran an ad in Variety magazine of a, the logo for Friday the 13th, you know, the words coming through saying that it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. But that film had no funny and nothing. It was just a concept. Yeah. And they basically just yeah. ran it with the hopes that it would get made. So take that mm-hmm. and then amplify it by like a quad billion And that's what you're working with right now is just, <laughs> it, it's it's really, it's pretty amazing. And they were all in. And in most cases, especially early on, it worked out. Big time for them. I mean, it really did pay off. That yeah. Game. So
1: well, their their hits. You know, it was eighties excess at its finest. Really, is what these guys were. Um, you know, and and their hits through the years kind of got them through all of their misses which there were many <laughs> yeah. but the hits were big enough that it could bridge that gap you know <laughs> yeah that
2: is that is very accurate uh, we'll talk about that when we get to toby hooper is basically like yeah you could have a how many how many at bats do you get you know like <laughs> one of it's yeah. one of them's gonna hit a home run eventually but i don't know i know
1: right uh, so in 1978, they made a movie called Lemon Popsicle. This is back when they were still in Israel, and uh, it was really, it was a sex comedy It you know, involved teen pregnancy, but it was a, um, it was a huge hit, uh, and they used that that success as a way to break into the U.S. film industry, and, and then they'd end up remaking it as uh, Last American Vir- yeah Last American Virgin in 1984. Four eighty three, but we'll we'll get to that movie as well. But that was like Lemon Popsicle was huge, and they made a number or a number of sequels were made to it, and it was uh, you know uh, they were really off to the races, or so they thought.
2: Yeah, yeah. I don't even know. Have you ever looked into how many sequels were made? I think I lost count at like six or something. I don't. It was. Yeah,
1: six. it's it's. I think it's like seven. Yeah, but it's because they changed the name. You know, the name changes, so it's a little. Gets a little foggy of like, well, is this actually a sequel or what? But there's a there's a bunch. Yeah. Um, So they they come to the US and and the first, you know, big movie that they make or their big attempt is called The Apple. Has anybody seen The Apple?
2: Um, I haven't. (laughs) I have not. But I will tell you to to our listeners right now. I will definitely have seen it by the time this airs, because we're, we're on Laser Graves going to try and tackle this one. <laughs> I saw a trailer for it. Oh, my it. God. I saw a trailer, and I was like, what in the world am I watching right now? And for me, that's saying a lot. I, it may, I have to see it. I have to see this movie.
1: It looks completely bananas uh, and I think you guys are going to do a great job covering it. It's it's it is it is something else. I mean it's shocking. Like what is this movie about? It's like something about the good and evil of the music industry, but it's kind of futuristic and I, I don't know. It's so, and it, it's kind of like it, it made me think of the movie Hair also. Oh, interesting. So yeah. That well that some of their movies you know, like like uh, Ninja Three, also are these strange mixtures of genres that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Here, you know, they're coming in with this big expectation off the Lemon Popsicle success, and this is a the the, the Apple's a disaster. I mean, audiences they would give out they gave out free copies of the the soundtrack at at the theater. And audiences were throwing them at the screen when the movie was over. Like, they were angry.
2: Oh. You know... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was... That's a... It wasn't a good. visceral reaction. Huh? <laughs> yeah. You know what I will say, though? It, this is kind of from right out of the gates with canon. I feel like the apple is the perfect example, is that swing and a miss, or that willingness to take a risk no matter what is what sets canon apart from other major film studios of that era is that Mm -hmm. they were okay with taking a risk because from my understanding, they were always like 10 films ahead. Like they didn't didn't have time to get worried about the film if it was a flop because they were already working on so many other films at such intensity that they just were willing to take a risk on anything. And as a creative person... Imagine working with somebody like that, that even if they're intense and micromanaging to be able to say, sure, just run with it. Um, that, that had to have been hard to find at that time in Hollywood.
1: Totally. Yeah, it was always their mentality was like the next one will be bigger and better. And, 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 and that was the their mentality the whole way through. Uh, but yeah, definitely. They 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 took a chance there. You're right. They you know, you have to credit them. For trying it, you wouldn't, I, This, especially this movie is so strange, like I, it, a lot of companies wouldn't go for it.
2: And it was directed by uh, Globus, wasn't it?
1: Golan was the director. Um, Globus kind of stuck to the money.
2: No, <laughs> oh, Right, that's right. Uh,
1: but then they also, you know, tried to capitalize, uh, you know, at this point by 1980... Halloween had come out Friday the thirteenth was was a hit. So they're they're also trying to jump on the slasher bandwagon with uh and they I believe they did a few of them that year with New Year's Evil and the Hospital Massacre, which also has another name, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, it's under X Ray. That was the the year right after. That the original title was X Ray. And New Year's Evil came out in nineteen eighty. That absolutely they were just trying to piggyback on the slasher craze that was happening at the moment you know you had films that were all around the corner the burning all these great the prowler was going to be coming i mean these iconic films but new year's evil man that's a weird one and it's it's weird in a canon kind of weird um i i actually like it and i would say canon didn't do a whole lot of full-fledged like traditional horror but the one the, the few that really stand out are pretty good and New Year's Evil doesn't break any new ground. It's it's very standard, but what it does, it does well. If you're wanting a slasher, and I think it's easy to go back in time with modern eyes and tear it down based on things around it, but when it was coming out, um, this would have been a very solid slasher. I really enjoyed it. it it's it's cool. It's written and directed by this guy, Emmett Elston, and he you know he didn't do a whole lot after this he worked with Cannon some more on some of the ninja films but this film in particular just takes it's a holiday horror which was unique already because there weren't a lot of them at the time and then it it focuses around this new wave kind of punk scene of um this party for new year's eve party and there's this deranged killer that's going around killing people at different time zones as the ball is dropping and I don't know. I really love it. There's some cool uh, live performances by some of the bands in there. And um, anybody who has listened to any episodes from, from Laser Graves would know I'm my favorite genre of film is like metal horror or rock and roll horror. So anything that, that mixes mm-hmm. those two, I'm a fan of and that has this. So actually, New Year's Evil, as far as canon horror for me, is going to be at the not at the very top But right under the very top Because it's it's solid And if you haven't seen it, uh, check it out I mean, it's They they came out trying to get into that horror game And I think they came out strong They dipped a little after this But this was a good early venture Into the slasher genre
1: Yeah, and it's got Doesn't it have legs? I mean, I, I feel like I've always heard <clears throat> I haven't seen the movie But I feel like I've always heard about it
2: It's become a cult icon and for people like myself who i collect vhs like i'm a very avid vhs collector especially horror this is a staple in a vhs collection you know like the paragon release with the guy in the front with a switchblade you know looking out that's it's just a must-have and they followed this up with hospital hospital massacre which you had mentioned it was called Mm -hmm. x-ray so that was 1981 what I thought was interesting is that one was directed by Boaz Davison, who he's the guy who did Lemon Popsicle. So that was the same director. Yeah. They brought him on board. He also directed Last American Virgin. So that he did all of these films. Um, and X-Ray, I would say it goes down a few notches from New Year's Evil. It's also a pretty standard slasher. The difference being that it's just kind of um, the script's just kind of a mess. It's It doesn't really make sense kind of um, all over the place.
1: I don't know this. Typical canon. Yeah,
2: it, it, this is, I would say, New Year's Evil doesn't feel as canon as X-Ray feels. <laughs> so um, mm-hmm. it stars Barbie Benton, who was this playboy, you know, playmate. She was in the love boat and Fantasy Island and all this stuff. And it's got a couple of the kids from this other movie called Bloody Birthday that I really love. Um, but it's, it's okay, I wouldn't say it's great. Something that bothers me as a film composer is that it blatantly rips off Psycho and The Omen, and that's okay if it fit, but it doesn't fit into this film at all. So it was interesting mm-hmm. to see already in the very first couple years of canon when they tried to get into the genre of horror, they had a hit and a miss and a hit and a miss. like you know, And that would be the story of them in every genre they tried throughout the entire yeah. 80s.
1: Yeah, horror seems to be something they could never really get consistently a win with. Like they kept, yeah, like you said, just, you know, it would work, it wouldn't work, it would work, it wouldn't work, but they could never really get a hook in there.
0: Right. Isn't horror the genre, like, that's kind of like the most easy to produce, easy to make on a budget, you know, so at least you can at least try a million things and try to make that slasher film or you know that murder kind of gore fest or whatever and you know maybe something will hit you know isn't that like typically what the genre is about
2: it is and that's it's it's a place where you can take a risk basically because you can bring in no-name actors as your leads you could bring in a named actor but you really don't have to in, in horror especially in the 80s you could just bring in a crazy idea add in some good effects and some good gore and if it takes awesome. If it doesn't, on to the next thing, because it it doesn't take a lot of money to produce a horror film like it does a special effects, heavy, you know, fantasy film or sci-fi film or action film. So uh, horror was definitely low risk, low reward. But if it happened and you struck gold like Friday the 13th or something or Nightmare on Elm Street, you're good to go.
1: You know what those early horror films were missing that would have really put it over the over the top?
2: What,
1: Michael Dudikoff? <laughs> if he had been a few years older, that would have been it. Oh yeah, <laughs> he had the look. <clears throat> we'll get to him though. Um, so, 1981 uh, is when the next little sh- sub genre uh, begins for canon, which is the ninja sub genre. Which we would see many, uh, many different kinds of ninjas over the years. We would see. Ninjas from the Orient and uh, nin- American ninjas. So they, they'd be all over the place.
2: And this is kind of what separated Canon right away from all other film companies, right? I mean, it's my understanding that nobody was really in the ninja game or the knockoff ninja game like Canon was. And I, it, for me as a kid, we're all around the same age. So Canon films in the video store on the shelf were a, the staple and there was nothing greater than a, a classic uh, cheesy ninja movie from the 80s and it was most likely put out by canon.
1: Yeah, I mean there's you had the kung fu, you know, phase from the what the 60s and 70s, but that's a whole separate thing. The right. 80s ninja thing really did start with canon. And mm-hmm. it started with <laughs> and, and I think Enter the Ninja was was the first movie, right?
2: Yeah, I I think so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which is another like you know their their best work was their action movies and they're just but they are really ridiculous this being one of them with the they cast Franco Nero who had never heard of a ninja didn't understand what it was or how he was really supposed to play the character but they cast him as the lead in <laughs> as their lead <laughs> hero ninja anyway why not
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a very canon thing to do
1: yeah, Franco, who who is a big Italian, uh, you know, spaghetti western, like post-Eastwood spaghetti western kind of actor uh, who barely, you know, he a, not that he didn't speak English, but his accent was so thick, they ended up having to redub all of his lines anyway. Uh, but it's so much fun. And this is the first time I think we see Sho Kasugi, who is in, I believe, all of the, the Ninja movies.
2: Oh, interesting. I guess I hadn't put that together. yep, that makes sense, yeah. Canon dipped into the same pool of talent uh over and over and over again, like constantly. I mean, it was like they, and they said that too. I remember hearing an interview with them, and they were saying like they wanted to have people on call essentially where they wanted yeah. to work for canon
1: well, they had you know they had a stable of actors that they used and directors too, Boaz Davison being you know one of the main ones um but yeah, they would. They would go back to the well. I mean, I think ideally it's like they wanted to be like a major studio that would have people under contract. And and we'll get to that when we get to, you know, Bronson and, and Chuck Norris. Because that's, that's like, they would start categorizing, like, is this a... Charles Bronson movie is this script a Charles Bronson movie or a Chuck Norris movie? And if not, is it a Dudikoff movie? <laughs> and so speaking of Charles Bronson, 1982 is when uh, they they start a relationship with him, uh, with uh, you know dusting off the Death Wish movie out of Mothballs and and uh, starting Death Wish two and what would become a whole franchise worth of movies, which. I don't think it was ever the original intention.
2: Did you guys have a background with Death Wish, the whole series? Like, did you grow up on those or did you see them later in college? Uh, you know, because those are those are a, a major franchise, uh, you know, as far as 80s are concerned.
1: Yeah, when, when they hit my radar, I want to say Death Wish 3. I think it was Death Wish 3 was the first one that kind of registered with me. And, of course, I didn't know at the time that, like, the first one was this kind of, a different level of a movie and was made, like, 10 years prior. And, uh, you know, but... And Charles Bronson, you know, I didn't understand till later that he had this whole earlier career. He was the Death Wish guy, like, my whole... The first... My whole childhood, really.
2: Right.
0: Yeah, that's how I saw uh, Death Wish and Charles Bronson, thinking, like, that's what he was known for that there was like a whole series of things. I had no idea that, yeah, these eighties movies that were the, this, all these sequels that were coming out was, you know, from the original, like you said, I think it was like 70 early seventies was the original death wish. And yeah, I just thought that's what he did. Like I had no idea that Charles Bronson had any kind of career before that, <laughs> like um, that, that this is sort of the, you know, the denouement of his career, I think, but he was consistently working on the, um, but are they, I mean, how many do they make with Canon? Was it
1: how many did Bronson make or, or how many Bron- death wish movies?
0: How many death wish with Bronson, right? Was he, or was I
1: believe it's three. I think it was, I think they just did four or am I forgetting death wish five? Was there a death wish five? No, I don't know. There was I'm a remake sure. recently with Eli Roth. Yeah.
2: He, re- he redid death wish. Yeah. You
0: yeah. Got with Mr. Bruce Willis. Yeah. You know.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh,
1: what but, does that uh, say about bruce's career is it where charles bronson's was that's not very uh i don't know
0: <laughs> I, th- I think i think re- remaking deathwish in 2018 or tw- uh where everyone's talking about gun violence uh, was maybe maybe a a weird um uh, misdirect as far as uh you know mainstream you know uh hollywood you know violent movies i don't know maybe mm-hmm. I feel like they they delayed the original release of it, too, based on like some school shooting or mass shooting. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that might have that might have been a misfire. I don't know. I didn't see were it. You, I didn't see the remake.
2: Were you guys a fan of Death Wish? Like the series? I, did Overall, do you do you like them or are you just aware of them and they are what they are?
1: I I'm a fan in sort of the comical sense of it. Like, like, I don't love the movies, but. There are some incredible death scenes and one-liners in them that I get a, a kick out of.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I've seen bits of them, and I'm not—I'm not quite. It's not not something I gravitate towards. So <laughs>
1: it's not a Munchak film. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this was another big movie. I mean, this—you know—Charles uh, Bronson was still a huge name, uh, and this also started the the vigilante kind of subgenre. Uh, that they would, you know, have mostly with the Bronson films throughout the '80s. But they got the same director back. They got the original director Michael Winner, um, who was supposedly very tough to work with, very uh, demanding of his actors, especially. I don't think you get a lot of good reports from the actresses who were in most of these movies. Not big fans of uh, Michael Winner's approach. No. Um, yeah, and then you know it takes it takes the Paul Kersey character in a bit of a different direction. He's much more... It's uh, just the violence is amped up in each of these Death Wish movies, kind of more and more throughout the series, right?
2: Yeah, and I just... For me, personally, it's it's not my thing. I, I grew up on Bronson because my dad was a Bronson fan. But when, when I watch them, I just don't feel like they age too well. They're really... Um, there's a lot of violence, a lot of violence against women, and you mm-hmm. know, as a father of two of two daughters, I just those those kind of films don't sit well with me, and they're not entertaining. So I think that it's a certain type of film you have to know you're getting into, and especially like part two. I mean, it's pretty gritty and it's pretty dark, and yeah, um, yeah, it, it's not my cup of tea. But I do kind of see how they fed into that '80s vigilante subgenre that canon really did become also known for
1: yeah yeah there's a you know uh, i don't know it's a lot of exploitation going on in these movies and a lot of raping a lot of violence that it doesn't it, it's hard I, I watched death wish 2 a few years ago and it w- it was hard to sit through it, it was I, I i had a tough time with it but but it was you know it did it, it was a successful movie for them it brought charles bronson kind of gave him new life and uh you know the the whole latter half of his career was really based off of uh off of death wish too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh
1: but they would continue in, in, in <laughs> jumping across genres here. Uh they also made a film called Lady Chatterley's Lover in 1982 <laughs> which was it <laughs> oh, couldn't be more different than Death Wish Two.
2: Boy, did they! I have a little story about that one. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> okay, so my like one of the films that's my all-time favorite film ever, which made me instantly love your podcast, was Escape from New York. That was your your debut <laughs> episode, and I was like, "All right, I'm in on these guys." Because that film to me is everything, and the reason why it is is that my my father worked out on base he was military and he had a buddy who would bootleg all these movies onto blank VHS tapes so there would be like you know three or four movies on a tape and my dad would bring mm-hmm. them home in in bags and so all of a sudden we'd have all these cool movies to watch cuz i didn't have cable or anything one of them was Escape from New York, and I watch it over and over and over again. And on that same tape was Lady Chatterley's Lover. Oh my God! And I had I'd never seen anything like that before, and I was very very young. I mean, I'm talking like this is still in the '80s, so I was in elementary. <laughs> And I would, you yeah. know, it would run out after I would watch all the credits on Escape from New York, it would run into Lady Chatterley's Lover. And of <laughs> oh course, I was curious. And I was like, what am I even watching right now? Because it is a very like sensual Skinamax type movie. Uh, mm-hmm. very, And so that I will forever know that title. Um, I don't even know what the film's about. I just know that it it has a place in my childhood. We'll say that. Wow,
0: yeah, you did, you did the double feature. You did that's that's a hell of a double feature. It's right a there. drive-in right
2: there. <laughs> yeah, I wow. Can,
1: I can picture that poster: "Escape from New York," "Lady Chatterley's Lover." Of course. <laughs>
2: yeah, makes perfect sense.
1: <laughs> but yeah, this was this was an adaptation of a D H of a, a D H Lawrence novel, and really, it it seems like what they really wanted out of it, it was it was just a way to get Sylvia Crystal who was the main actress in the film, her topless and naked as much as possible. Yeah. (laughs) And then they would follow it up with like the whole Emmanuel series, which was like at least eight movies, if not more than that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If it ain't broke. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's exactly. That's, that's another theme of theirs throughout the, throughout the eighties. Um, the, uh, so another movie, have, I don't know if you've seen it. I don't think you've covered it on Laser Graves, but Alien Contamination, is that one that you're familiar with at all?
2: Yeah, actually, I actually have it sitting right in front of me, except I have the version <laughs> called Contamination because that was the original title. Alien was brought on by um, by Canon, of course. So this is an interesting one, and I, I actually am glad that you wanted to, to bring this one up because not only is it a cool film, but it's one of the few in here that isn't a canon film at all. This is a film that was uh, produced in 1980, created, it's an Italian kind of knockoff of Alien, uh, but mm. it's but then it was absorbed and distributed by Canon, which is a theme that is also throughout their whole their whole legacy too is not all of their films were produced by them, but some were just distributed. And so Alien Contamination as it's better known came out in 82 through them. It was directed by Luigi Cozy, and he did, he worked with them on some other things. Uh, Most notably, I'm sure, I'm sure you guys, somebody's seen it Hercules with Lou Perigno. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. No, he did a bunch (laughs) of cool stuff. But no, this is actually like a legit, in the horror community, this is a cool film. This is not exactly an alien knockoff, but they knew what they were getting, they knew they could piggyback on it and it takes place as though alien like came to earth and uh, eggs were set up around the city it's also uh, a cult classic because the score was done by goblin who did a lot of like argentos films oh, nice. and stuff yeah so it yeah. is it's a cool film i actually really like it but as far as canon's concerned this isn't like a legit canon film and it does not feel or look anything like a canon film because it wasn't made by them but it was distributed by them
1: hmm interesting yeah yeah wow okay well, uh maybe we'll have to screen this one
2: yeah let's
0: let's uh, let's queue it up let's let's reserve the theater and we're gonna we're gonna book it we're gonna watch this together let's go
1: <laughs> yeah go. david work on work on getting your hands on the thirty five millimeter print of it please
0: i'm uh <laughs> writing a note to give to one of our interns right now to start making those phone calls
1: yeah uh okay, and then also nineteen eighty two came uh last American version which we were virgin which we mentioned earlier was a remake of Lemon Popsicle, also directed by Boaz Davidson. Uh, You know, really the same kind of themes. It was, I guess, a pretty faithful remake, although the original was set in the 50s, and this is now, you know, modern-day 80s. Yeah,
2: it's my understanding that it was almost a shot-for-shot remake, honestly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, very, very close. Um, You know, this was the introduction of Diane Franklin, who... I'm a big fan of, you know, she would be fantastic in Better Off Dead and uh, Bill and Ted's, uh, the first Bill and... Wait, is she in both Bill and Ted movies?
3: Oh, I, I can't don't know. Remember.
1: I think she. I think it's maybe just the first one, but um, I haven't seen those in a while, too. But, uh, and also Lawrence Monison, who we would uh, see later on Friday the 13th, the final chapter. So this is their introduction to film. And uh, the movie also, you know, doesn't really go over that well. I mean, it's become a cult, a cult favorite over the years. But box office wise, I don't think it did very well. Didn't have didn't get a lot of love from the critics. Uh, That's like
2: that's canon in a nutshell right there. I mean, almost their entire catalog didn't go over well at first (laughs) and then became cult classics. No joke. Like that is that's the canon staple. That's a canon guarantee.
1: 1983 they do make their first kind of attempt at getting into the respectable Oscar kind of category with uh, a movie called That Championship Season which was uh directed by Jason Miller who is one of the stars of The Exorcist uh based on his Pulitzer prize winning play uh and it's got an amazing cast I mean it, it it's it's uh it's a good story it's a great cast it's Martin Sheen Robert Mitchum uh, Bruce Dern, Stacy Keach, Paul Sorvino—you uh, know, all A-list actor, respectable actors—and this movie has nothing to do with action or ninjas or ladies getting naked. Uh, it's just <laughs> totally different, but also still not a hit for them.
3: <laughs> yeah,
0: uh, that championship season. It's uh, it's based on it's based in a, a Pennsylvania town. Um, and so specifically Jason Miller, who's from the Scranton, Pennsylvania area, uh, like this is where he based it. So, you know, where they shot a lot of, a lot of stuff from that film, uh, there in Scranton. So where I, like where I grew up and I, I want to say one of one of them was the, the grade school gym that I was in, but that has, has since burned down, but I don't know if that's true, but, um, you know, that, that Jason Miller, you know known for being in the exorcist but also was a playwright in his own right and a uh, theater director um and he he was sort of the local celebrity of you know of scranton and uh, you know he would he'd be seen at cooper's which is the the, the big seafood restaurant in the town <laughs> things like that so it's uh it's uh, there there were there are visuals and things that are from the era from where i grew up that you know that championship season is sort of this local like lore legend kind of thing for people in that area. And as much as I, I found the, I saw a, I think a hardcover version of the play, uh, at a used bookstore and I had to send it to my best friend, Joe, who, um, you know, is just, is one of the, is is one of those guys that like yourself, John keeps me in the loop on what great film there is and out there and all of that. And, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's surprising. I didn't realize this was under the canon banner, but I was i yeah, aware of that. Yeah. I was aware of that movie for for many many years.
1: All right, so nineteen eighty three, uh, EK. What do you think about uh, how, the House of the Long Shadows? Are you are you familiar with that one? You know, I've never seen it, but I've heard about it so much,
2: and I think it's kind of an interesting concept because this is one where they're bringing back all these kind of icons of early horror. And trying to make them almost, it's a, what's that? Expendables. It's like the expendables (laughs) of of old horror icons. Um, I honestly have never seen it. I've always heard about it. I've just never had the access to it. A lot of the films that I watch, I watch through my own library. Like I'll get it on VHS and then I'll watch it. Um, sometimes I'll break the rules and, and go on YouTube or something. But usually I like to wait and watch it on tape first. And so I've just always kind of waited to find this one and never have. But I think I think the idea is cool. I am actually a fan of this. It's kind of like grumpy old men, right? Like where you <laughs> you're, bring them back and see what happens. And maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. But I don't know. Have you ever seen it?
1: Uh, I've seen pieces of it, but I have not seen all the way through. But yeah, it's Vincent Price, it's Christopher Lee, it's Peter Cushing. You get the all-star lineup there. Wow! But um, you know, and trying to do with you know again go to the well with what worked with these guys, even though at least two of them were quite old at the time. Um, but it didn't, it didn't uh, go over well with the audience. I'm not gonna, I don't want to spoil it, but there's there's a twist that happens that kind of is, uh, I don't know anyone that liked it.
2: Oh, interesting. Now so, I really want to watch it. Yeah, 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 I want to get in on this. That sounds like fun. Yeah.
1: It'll be interesting to really hear what your guys' take is uh, if you get to it for your show.
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: Um, but of course, you know, you had to go with what was working. So you get 1983 uh, brings some more Bronson with 10 to Midnight. Um, and a lot most of the Charles Bronson movies... They're all capitalizing on each other. So, you know, we don't need to break down each of them, but Ten to Midnight was was one. Um, I think they kind of like weaken in popularity as the decade goes along. Um, But this was I guess it ranks up there in the vigilante uh, Bronson movies.
2: You know what they did as far as we were talking about kind of creating fake posters and fake pitches. Bronson and both Norris they could do this where they could just basically show an investor a photo of Bronson holding a gun and -hmm. then come up with a nonsense simple plot on the spot and people would give them money and then depending on if they got enough money to make the film then they would go and make the film that they just promised they would make that wasn't written like that's how they did this it's it's amazing.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you have a poster of Charles Bronson in 1983 holding a gun or a machine gun and say, like, this time he's back for revenge, I mean, that's going to sell. Yep. Uh, we also get, as you mentioned, we've got Hercules, which has some of the most amazing visual effects that I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Whoa, yeah. Well, until was, we get to Superman 4. but uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah.
1: Was this after uh, Incredible Hulk? I can't remember when that went off the air.
2: I would think it would have had to have been, right? Because yeah. Lou's stardom was top notch at that
1: point. Right, right. And then we get our the uh yeah. next uh entry into our our ninja realm with Revenge of the Ninja also also sh- starring Shoko again this time he's the lead in it instead of I believe he's the lead villain in or one of the lead villains in the first in Enter the Ninja but here he's the the lead you uh, know lead of the movie um and different character not related to Enter the Ninja but it's its own ninja movie and uh it's another good time if you like the ninja sub
2: <laughs> i did as the 80s <laughs> rolled on boy did i i had uh little stars that i would throw you know into haystacks and run around doing flips oh, yeah. you better believe it man i was <laughs> all in as a kid of the 80s ninjas uh, were everything
1: yeah <laughs> between you know these movies and like snake eyes on on gi joe i mean the oh, yeah stuff was oh, yeah. all over it was great
2: oh and by the time we got to like uh nightmare on elm street part four and the guys like putting on the headband <laughs> and doing his workout you know oh yeah that was me oh, that was man. definitely me <clears> 100 percent <throat> me
1: so 1984 is kind of the beginning of their big years um their their biggest years with starting to pump out more and more movies or getting a little more adventurous with them and one of their big uh you know attempts was a movie called Sahara starring Brooke Shields has anyone has anyone here actually seen it all the way through
2: nope i have not no that's yeah. not my not my bag <laughs> very
1: very few people have i think so it was a uh, another attempt uh, to cash in on another film success and they were going back to the classic genre and essentially a remake of lawrence of arabia a little modernized a little change you know uh, for the 80s but um it, it, was, it was capitalizing on lawrence of arabia and also raiders of the lost ark so kind of merging the two concepts um And at a huge budget. The budget was like $25 million. And they went through two directors and at least eight rewrites on the script. And Brooke Shields and her mother were were never really happy with everything. And it was was a disastrous release. I think it only made $1 million.
2: Hmm. Yeah, you know, and this is really, this is a shift for canon. Because when they first started they really did uh, define themselves by doing everything on a shoestring budget. You know, they could do it for one to two million tops and they wouldn't go over that. Mm -hmm. And then eventually they just got a little bit more greedy and they wanted a little more. And I think that there was this constant desire to be playing with the big kids, you know, to be sitting at the big boy table. And so they started dumping a little bit more money into films, but they were never putting that money into films that would really recoup the cost and it just got worse and worse and this is really the beginning of the end in my opinion for where they should have just taken this as what it was and said maybe we should go back to what works for us instead of pushing it further and further
1: mhm yeah and and by this point they had uh they had struck a deal with uh, MGM United Artists for uh to start distributing their films um but <laughs> who were never really I guess I don't think they really understood the kind of movies that Canon made when they made that deal uh, because they were never happy with, you know, uh, Golan and Globus were salesmen. So they would pitch these great ideas and or what sounded great and they would sell it. And, you know, MGM would be like, OK, all right, go make the movie. Here's here's your uh, this is your deal. And then the, when they would start seeing the you know edits come in, it was like, what? What did they do? What is this movie? Yeah. <laughs> so, and eighty four is kind of like the beginning and the end of that relationship. But we'll get and and the movie that that killed it really was Bolero. Another another you know bigger budget. It, it, it's similar to Sahara, not quite as big, but they're they're capitalizing on uh, Bo Derek's popularity with the movie Ten, and but it's kind of similar to Lady Chatterley's Lover. It's they just wanted Bo Derek naked on screen, having love scenes, and 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 basically two hours of that. And it was <laughs> what could go wrong. <laughs> what could go wrong? Well, everything went wrong. So. Um, you know, she plays a character who is like, you know, trying. It was going through her sexual awakening, and and it's her journey to lose her virginity. And it just it's directed by her husband John Derek, and it was it was just. I think another movie that they just they demanded more and more nudity and and it was it certainly made MGM very unhappy. So unhappy that they canceled their distribution deal and uh, for breach of contract, I believe.
2: Oh, interesting. Oh, (laughs) wow. Yeah.
1: So they were it was it was a high and a low point of that year. But uh, but they would keep going. I mean, they've got. Another attempt at an Oscar movie with Love Streams, which is a John Cassavetes film. I believe it was his second to last, um, which is another like highly respected movie with great, you know, the usual John Cassavetes great acting between him and his his wife Jenna Rollins, who are in the movie are playing brother and sister. Um, so uh, you know, again, they've got like another strange, not a big monetary hit, but a little bit of street cred coming back there. So you have this like you know, push and pull of, of like these hits and misses happening all constantly throughout their, their run.
2: Yep. That's absolutely. And it'll, it kind of never really ends. I would say by the tail end of the eighties, they have uh, more misses than hits, but early on they, they had the opportunity for sure, multiple times, you know, and that's, I think what kept this company afloat was you could put out 10, bad films, but you got one good one that would pay for the next 10 bad films, mm-hmm. you know. It was like that's how they did business.
1: Right. Uh and they're uh you know, they're pumping them out throughout the year. So we've got Breakin, which is a another well-respected a uh, hit for them about it's a, it's a breakdancing comedy, really.
2: This was a big one for them. This yeah, this was big.
0: This was this was what the basically the la breakdancing scene kind of thing and they they kind of built a story around the uh that culture and things of that nature
1: yeah yeah absolutely they uh Golan i i think it was on the venice uh board not boardwalk but venice beach and his daughter like was super fascinated with the you know with this breakdancing you know scene that was happening there Uh, And it was so popular; it was rising in popularity, and this is one they were able to capitalize on in time. They weren't (laughs) jumping on someone else's bandwagon. They actually were, you know, were leading it themselves in a way.
0: Yeah, they were getting ahead of the (laughs) ahead of it, like in terms of probably exposing the rest of the nation to break dancing. In terms of, Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's like big in like the more urban areas, but. Breaking was sort of that, that film that kind of like mainstreamed the whole thing for, for everybody. Is that, yeah. was that the idea?
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and it outgrossed 16 candles. Like it was, it was a big movie. Yeah. Wow. And it was so big that they immediately went into a sequel that they released seven months after the first one hit the theater.
2: Oh my God. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, it's got him break dancing on the ceiling and everything else. Yeah. yeah. It's uh.
0: Woo. Hey, I saw bre- wrong with dancing yeah. on the ceiling nothing wrong with that
1: no 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 lionel <laughs> richie had it all over so
0: <laughs> he knows what's going on
1: <laughs> i saw break into electric boogaloo a few years ago in a hotel room and i was like my jaw dropped i was just so like it, it, i was hypnotized i couldn't take my eyes off it what <laughs> what is this movie <laughs>
2: You know how many reviews I've read of Canon Films where it starts with why did somebody feel they should make
1: this? (laughs) (laughs) And they did. And they did it again and again. Um, But uh, uh, Breaking 2 introduces uh, uh, introduces Canon to Lucinda Dickey who is another one of their, you know, in their stable, their repertoire of actors. Um, So she was a more of a traditional dancer who they kind of threw into the breakdancing break dancing world, and that was that's what makes the second movie <laughs> kind of stand out is this it doesn't quite fit but uh it's it's still working, but they would uh they would hang on to her and she would be the lead in the third of the ninja trilogy uh with ninja three the with do- the domination right that's the sub the kind of subtitle <laughs>
2: that is it is yeah. <laughs>
1: You have to love this one.
2: <laughs> this is like I mean just watch the trailer and um <laughs> what, what more do you need? Like this is this is the pinnacle of canon in my opinion. Like this is just so good. It's uh it's absurd. It's like the the because a woman could not possibly be a ninja, the spirit of a ninja must possess a woman. It's oh wow. Oh no, I mean, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah what the fuck okay it's like the exorcist meets uh you know enter the enter the ninja it's it's interesting
1: and throw in a little flash dance in there too
2: oh yeah yeah for sure
1: (laughs) yeah she's like a possessed aerobics instructor or something that she's possessed by this like ninja curse and then we do see uh we, we do see shogosuki appear again um as like a i think he's like a like a good ninja spirit who's trying to help her
3: <laughs> oh no
1: yeah it's like all right you did the ninja thing and now you went too far guys
2: <laughs> did they though but, that's the real question uh, yeah. well, <laughs> in my going. opinion they they went right where they needed to go yeah
1: uh and then 1984 would uh would start another relationship that would go throughout the rest of the 80s with uh with Chuck Norris and we would get the beginning of his his genre of the uh, of canon films with missing in action 1 which was actually missing in action 2 do you guys know that story
2: <laughs> yeah it is what? pretty funny yeah this is uh <laughs> kind of hollywood legend here
3: <laughs>
2: oh yeah this Break is it down so
1: for me. they basically what would become we'll talk about them both here i guess what would become Missing in Action 2 was originally written and I believe shot first. And yeah, it was done. Yeah, yeah it was finished. like they finished the movie and there were problems with it. So they, while they were developing the sequel, that was coming along much better, right? And then they, they shot it quickly and just switched them.
2: They realized that Chuck was basically given a better performance. Everything was better about it. And they said, if we're going to lead off, we should lead off with the second film. Let's just switch them and call that the first film.
1: Right. So Missing in Action 2 was promoted as as a prequel when originally it was just part one and, you know, the other one was the sequel, but they just, just did a straight switch. Uh, and and Missing in Action is huge for them. Another, another big hit that's going to, you know, catapult them through, uh, you know, the beginning of the... Well, it wasn't the beginning. It was also capitalizing on... First Blood, but also trying to get in the theaters before Rambo 2, uh, which is, you know, let's go back to Vietnam and rescue the POWs, which you saw uh, tons of those movies throughout the 80s.
2: Yeah. And unlike um, Bronson for Canon, I, I was a huge I loved Chuck Norris as a kid in the 80s. He was awesome. Like, you know, if it had Chuck Norris in it. Sure. I'm going to watch it. Why not?
1: What did you watch, Chuck Norris and his Karate Fighters?
2: No, I don't think I did that. What oh, do you, you do? Though? You got <laughs> what? what? Wait, tell, that, tell
1: me about this. That's the, his animated series, which I think didn't come out till the, maybe the early '90s or late '80s. But it's uh, it's his you know Saturday morning cartoon, basically.
2: Oh no! Oh, interesting. Gotta watch it. Gotta watch okay. it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: karate um, Fighters. Yeah. Uh. Oh, boy. Chuck Norris and his karate fighters oh no all right
2: <laughs> we learn something learn something new every
1: day so yeah the relationship with uh, Chuck starts off very well and and uh, that's gonna be a big time for them and and God he's almost got at least a movie a year especially as we get into the beginning of their biggest years in 1985 in 1985 I think he's got I'm just looking real quick he's got... One, two, yeah, two movies in '85 with Missing in Action 2 and Invasion USA.
2: Well, that was a big one,
1: yeah, and that was, and that's actually the same director as Missing in Action 1, um, Joseph Zito, who would also go on to do Friday the 13th, the final chapter, so another connection Mm -hmm. there. But man, Invasion USA is is a lot it's a lot of action very intense uh very heavy movie uh david we we watched this what a year ago or so
0: yeah you and i sat down together uh uh after i don't i don't even know we had a, a calm day and a, and a beautiful sunny afternoon <laughs> and then the, the sun set and it was like well what can we do now? And you were like, Invasion USA. And I was like, yes, that's what I need. Give me whatever the hell that is. Yes. And that, that shit is crazy.
2: (laughs) That movie is nuts. Is that Um, the one where they basically could blow up an entire town? Is that that film? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That, that is nuts. They
0: um, land on the coasts uh, all across America and start killing everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Oh Oh my God. It's insane.
1: Yeah, they, they uh, shot it in Atlanta, right near the Atlanta uh, airport, and there was a town that was basically about to be redeveloped, so that everything was going to be bulldozed and and uh, so they took advantage of it and literally blew up an entire town, which is a very intense scene. Seeing this, you know, this what what was it, David? Was it a commu- It was a communist like rebel group who just invades the country and just hits this small town. And blows up this entire neighborhood. I mean, you get this amazing shootout and car chase throughout a mall. It's really amazing.
0: Yeah, you can like there are they're it's it, any ranch style home uh, suburb <laughs> kind of street that they they you know that that existed. Like people lived in these homes at one point, and you know they shot it like you know this is uh, this is just a, some casual neighborhood, and then you know a giant truck rolls in and a guy has a bazooka. And is launching missiles into these homes and exploding them like it is it is so uh it's so uh odd like you know the 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 juxtaposition of like sort of this peaceful town and then massive violence in it uh where people like go to sleep you know and and of course they mm-hmm. shoot films where like or they shoot scenes where the people are going from their cars into their homes with their families and things. So it makes it seem like, yeah, this is like peaceful town is completely disrupted by mega violence, military people Mm -hmm. with explosive weapons. It's, it's kind of jarring. And, um, I think it, it kind of, it really works for like the, the entire movie is just this intense, like battle of, uh, you know, this mass, all these massacres happening. And then Chuck Norris trying to like, stop them and and get revenge kind of all, all at the same time
1: yeah and even chuck would would later admit that it was it was too much <laughs> it was yeah too, like you know i think you know he was explaining when you when you've got a script and you're seeing like the longer version of this stuff and it's playing out a certain way and then they get in there and they edit it down and edit out edit out some of the dialogue and some of the you know the um plot building parts of it that they, you know, really just becomes about the action. And this is a funny story about this one too. Uh, apparently Whoopi Goldberg really was petitioning to get into this movie and Chuck wanted her to play the reporter. And uh, Joe Zito, the director, vetoed it and, you know, uh, you know, recast it. And it really pissed Chuck off because that was, she did the color purple immediately after and became this huge star. And... Uh, Wow. he I, I think that ended his relationship with joe zito he said he'd never work with him again after not trusting that decision
3: wow.
2: yeah the old the old zito veto you don't want to do that <laughs> i love that Whoopi wanted in like that <laughs> totally that's an amazing, yeah. she wanted um, where the
1: action was so. yeah. yeah she she knew the money was in chuck
0: well like but Chuck and did Chuck and Whoopi, I guess, probably work together before that? Like that's why she you... was.
1: I I forgot what movie it was, but she was basically an extra, or, or she was either an extra or you know had a very small part in another movie he had made a couple years earlier. And I think they just, I think they just, you know, I don't know if they struck up a friendship, but they had yeah. some kind of correspondence. So
0: oh yeah, no, it looks like uh, a Force of One, which is the yes, number. that was okay. It. That's the movie they were in together. I guess that. Yeah, she had a small part. But oh, that, that's fascinating. <laughs> oh, but man. um
1: yeah, but uh, and my favorite thing about Invasion USA is the poster and the the with Chuck like over a cityscape with, you know, an Uzi, Uzi in each hand.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just blasting in multiple directions.
3: <laughs>
1: when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I remember being at somebody's bar mitzvah and they would have these, you know, like stands these bot these cutouts that you would like put your head on the body and take the picture of it and for some reason they had uh they had two they had hercules hernandez who was a a big wrestler for the wwf in the 80s and they had chuck norris from invasion usa so (laughs) somewhere in the world there is a picture of little little john with my head on both of those bodies (laughs) <laughs> so wow.
0: your dumb little head on top of Chuck Norris' body with the Uzi's? Like. Yep. <laughs> I bet you were so oh, yeah. excited. Can, I need to get a copy of that. I need it. <laughs> I will
1: try and, and dig that out. Track, track that down. I'll tweet next it year's,
2: out. Next year's Christmas
1: card. Yes.
0: Yeah. Oh my God.
1: And uh so 1985 was a big year. We've got a lot of big movies to to talk about. Um just real quick, we would get another Bronson movie with Death Wish 3, which is, you know, rinse and repeat, more of the same with Bronson and the Paul Kersey character, but getting more extreme, you know, I think this time he's running around with a bazooka blasting uh blasting gang members apart.
3: <laughs>
1: um, but we would also get the introduction of not just the ninja, but the American ninja.
2: Oh, <laughs> here we go. So this we is was, the whole uh, reason I, you wanted to do this.
1: This is a <laughs> I, I just watched this movie for the first time. <laughs> I want to hear about how much you loved it. I hate this
0: movie. <laughs> I'm so upset. I wanted well, to watch more canon films in preparation for this discussion which now I'm revealing I was not tricked by a pizza party, but this was planned. (laughs) And uh, I was like, well, American Ninja, that's that's that I've heard of. That's sort of that's sort of representative of canon in the sense that they had multiple versions of it uh, with Michael Dudikoff. And oh, man, it's a big disappointment.
3: (laughs) Wow.
1: Yeah. And in hindsight, uh, American Ninja, at least the first one, doesn't really hold up as well as some of the other Michael Dudikoff movies would. So, you know, before we get into that, Michael Dudikoff would end up being sort of the guy that like when Chuck Norris would say no to a project, it would fall to Dudikoff, who was a uh, a model, basically a model and an actor who's, you know, in some small parts in Tron and, and Bachelor Party and was, uh, I believe he was a waiter at a restaurant where they were at. And uh, and they just kind of fell in love with his look and his charm. And felt like they, you know they thought he was going to be the next james dean so <laughs> they're like well chuck doesn't want to do this movie let's let's give it to michael he's not even a a, a trained martial artist but we, he, we he's an actor we can make him into one
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it worked out
1: really well yeah uh but this is the beginning of that relationship which would last also last th- throughout the rest of the 80s but um yeah, I don't think American Ninja, you know, it's probably the most popular one that that people are familiar with, but I don't think that's the best Dudikoff one. Ek, what do you, what do you think?
2: Oh come on, we know we know what <laughs> know. the best Dudikoff film is. <laughs> no more dancing around. We, no, yeah, <laughs> I'll agree. I don't think this is. Uh, I mean, it's fine, but it's that's no fine. avenging force. I'll say that.
1: Oh no! 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 <laughs> yeah no i've yeah, seen
0: avenging force that i liked that that i mean we've talked about uh you know i don't know what i was expecting when i i went back in time to watch american ninja but uh, avenging force is definitely a, a step up from from what i from from this one
1: yeah avenging force would be Well, let's just let's just sidestep to that one real quick and david i think it's so special and it's such a special movie to me that uh, we might, I think we should dive into this one. Maybe, yeah. maybe our next episode, let's, yeah. let's stick with Canon and we'll dive, we'll do a deep dive into American, or uh, Avenging Force.
0: I'm in. Let's just like, we'll, we'll, let's just sleep over in the studio tonight and then in the morning we'll, we'll just do the Avenging Force episode. <laughs> <Okay>.
2: <laughs> That's the dedication it takes. Yeah.
1: But, uh, Laser Graves did, did, did covered, uh, Avenging Force as well, didn't you?
2: <laughs> we did. I uh, somehow <laughs> talked Mariah into that one, and uh, you know what? She enjoyed it. I just think it's so fun. It's so over the top, and it's very similar to, not canon-related, but one of my favorite uh, you know, directors that does cheesy action is David A. Pryor. He He started AIP Films, and it's got that quality to it, where it's just, it's like action turned up to 11. You know, it's just... Mm-hmm it's everything you want like i feel like if you're if you're an action fan you can sit through a lot of these kind of mediocre ones but if you're not an action fan you need something to really stand out and it needs to be you're all in and i feel like with avenging force it's just it's everything you need in an action film so if yeah. you were on a deserted island and you said well you only get you know two films or three films from each genre I would definitely bring with me uh, Avenging Force to that island.
1: We'll talk about it in our Avenging Force episode, but I have uh, I have lugged Avenging Force around with me for like for years and years across multiple platforms. So it's it's near and dear to to my heart, and I think EK's as well.
0: Yeah. <laughs> You're like those Star Wars fans that bought Star Wars on every format as it came yeah. out since the yeah. 70s. You're like, yeah, no, absolutely, I'm buying. Every Avenging Force, I need the the VHS, I need the DVD, I need the Blu-ray,
1: I need the the, the digital on-demand.
0: <laughs> I have to have it. But oh, if you're no. if you're a
1: if you're a Dudikoff fan, I, I think Avenging Force is his really is his best one. I mean, it's 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 got a more it's just a lot more going on in it than American Ninja had. I feel like. Oh and, yeah. And you've got and you've got the Pentangle as your supervillain group. I don't think it gets much better than the pentangle.
2: Yeah, it's true. That was really, is, is,
0: is enjoyable. Yes. And, and yes, the pentangle as a, as a, as the villainous sort of force behind everything.
2: Yeah. Very sure. And they're very creative, you know, they've got their masks and they're like clever, (laughs) you know, like, come on. They're they're trying, they're trying really hard. Um,
1: I highly recommend for those that haven't seen it, which is probably just about everybody listening. Avenging Force. Check it out. Uh, Just go by the Blu-ray. It's got commentary by the director, Sam Furstenberg, too. Um, But American Ninja would be the first time we see the Dudikoff and Steve James team up, which happens uh, at least two other times. So, you know, they're back together in Avenging Force and American Ninja 2. So a great team was born. It rivals the uh, Gibson and Glover team to me. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I'll see. I'll, I I want to see American Ninja Two. The first one was tough, but I would see the second one. I don't care. That sounds yeah. fun. I like Steve James.
3: <laughs> nice,
1: good. Um, also in 1985, we've got another you know a, a, another bizarre genre bending uh, film called Life Force. Ek, yeah. you you've got you've got to be familiar with this one.
2: Yeah, we also did an episode on this on Laser Graves. We did Life Force. So uh, have you guys, have either one of you ever seen it?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, Space Vampires. Oh, I will see it then.
2: It is, uh, you know what? I think this is an interesting one, and I honestly think this is probably one of the most important contributions canon made in the 80s. I think Life Force is a really important movie. I don't think it was received well. I still don't think it's quite understood. It was a bizarre film, but when you look at how it was created, who was involved, what it was trying to do, um I don't know if Canon was, was was maybe the right company to put it out, but they did. Yeah. And so this is what you get is the the Canon version of Life Force, but it came out in 85. It was written by Dan O'Bannon, which you should know that name because oh, yeah. he's, he's a staple. Um, so it's already written by, you know, a powerhouse. And then it's directed by Toby Hooper, who did Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist and Funhouse and all these great eaten alive, you know, like he, he'd he done his time. And so you've got a one-two punch, like you should be good to go. They build it. They put a lot of money into this, a $25 million budget And they build it like we had talked about earlier. You know, they were going to pitch everything as bigger and better than anything you had ever seen because it's canon related. And their tagline for this was the cinematic sci-fi event of the 80s. Um, Well, I don't know if I'd go that (laughs) far, but uh, it was it was an event. I don't know if it was the event, but it, it, it only grossed worldwide 11 million. So it was a flop but yeah, it's this really bizarre story. Um, it's kind of like, it's not like Lovecraftian, but it's like this strange space vampires where they, they bring them down to earth. You get a lot of this actress, Matilda may she's nude the entire film, just walking around. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, I mean that like, it's, it's just this beautiful woman as an alien walking around with special powers. You Patrick Stewart's in there being Patrick Stewart, really over-the-top effects for what Canon could offer, which is like, uh, you know, subpar effects for every other company. It's got the most bonkers ending. I don't know. I really like this movie a lot. I think that it's interesting. I think that they were really aiming for the stars and um, didn't quite hit their mark. But over time, it's really grown into a cult classic. And I don't know too many people that I talk to about cinema who have seen life force and don't like it. Like you can, it's low hanging fruit to just knock on, you know, what didn't work, but I think it's more important to focus on what was trying to be achieved. And I honestly think that life force for Canon, uh, is a, is a major moment in, in them Mm -hmm. establishing themselves as they're trying, they're trying really hard and they had the right team. It just didn't quite work out for them.
1: Yeah. They, they never stopped trying and, (laughs) I, uh, I know uh, so many people that love Life Force. I haven't seen it in, in a really long time. But, um, yeah, it's a really interesting film and interesting part of uh, Toby Hooper's career as well.
2: Yeah, and it's actually yeah. the beginning of his relationship with Canon. You know, he struck up a mm-hmm. three, three movie deal and this was the first one to come out. Um, and it instantly yeah. was a flop. You know, it's so, uh, you know, what do you do? And he was coming off the, the coattails of poltergeist. So like, you know, he was, right, a yeah. hot, he was a hot commodity.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm looking at the stills f- from it, a lot of, a lot, you know, from like IMDB and stuff. And the, this looks like a really big production. Like this looks like a lot of, uh, this is no, they're not, they're not screwing around here. Like this is quite a,
2: it is, a, I, I, and it, a, it is, I it, it's production. It's a big production. It's a crazy story. It's got some really yeah. cool moments. And uh, you know, when we revisited it to do the episode for Laser Graves, we both ended up just really enjoying it a lot. And you know, I have yeah. it. It's, you know, sitting right beside me too. It's I've got the Vestron release for on VHS and it's it's a great it's a great movie. I, I would recommend it. I'll say that. I, I do think it's cool. When I think of Canon, I think you can you can divide Canon into like cheesy laugh out loud canon and then you can have like, oh wait, this is this is a pretty cool movie. Uh Life Force falls into the ladder of this is just it's a pretty cool movie. Interesting. I I would
0: David, give this a shot.
2: I would give this a shot. What what? Yeah, David, question?
1: book it for book it for screening room twelve. Let's uh let's just let's keep all these going. We'll do an all nighter.
0: Okay. Yeah. Let's just keep watching canon film movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, that, yeah, let's do it. You know Thirty five
1: millimeter prints, get all the interns out there Somewhere safely trying to find everything. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but 1985, you know, we talked about, you know, for, like 40 ish films per year. It's at this point, like, this is where they're really pumping them out. They're still all over the place. Um, you've got another attempt to, uh, you know, get in the, the Oscar type category with Runaway Train, uh, which was an Akira Kurosawa script. And a really great movie. I mean, it got three Oscar nominations, and John Voight starring in it. It's a uh, that's a big movie and well respected over the years. But we've still got we've still we've got to go back to the well a little bit here. With uh, this is the beginning of a uh, I guess a what two part not a two part film but two back to back films with uh, Richard Chamberlain. Uh, this is King Solomon's Mines, and then Alan Quartermain in the Lost City of Gold. which is a very, very young Sharon Stone co-starring in it. But these are also, you know, basically Indiana Jones and Romancing the Stone kind of rip-offs. It's, you know, just like a C-level version of those movies and very similar tone, but just not as not as good.
2: This feels much more canon. Like This is
1: is what canon does, typically. (laughs) Oh, you want Indiana Jones? We're going to give you our version of Indiana Jones. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And and the last one I want to talk about for 1985 was I think you covered recently on your show with Hard Rock Zombies, right?
2: Oh, yeah. This is very much uh, Laser Graves material. So as I mentioned, I love uh, metal metal horror and this is a big big one it's a deep cut most people haven't seen it and the story behind it is really interesting because this um indian filmmaker was signed on to do a film called american drive-in and the film that is being seen at the drive-in was a horror film called hard rock zombies but they were having so much fun making it that they decided like well, well hey we've got everything already here let's just expand it into a feature film and so Hard Rock Zombies was created. So yeah, I would I would invite people to go listen to that episode. I really love the movie. It's completely bonkers. It's probably one of the craziest, you know, 80s horrors. It's just out out there. I mean, I'll say uh Nazi zombies. How about that? We'll say it's a hard rock (laughs) Nazi zombie movie and it's so bananas, but I love it. It's, it's interesting. Um, But this wasn't, this is why I like bringing this up is because this again is not a produced by Canon. This is a distributed by Canon film. So some of these films that are actually kind of staples in the horror community they were taking the risk of putting them out to the world, but they weren't actually the ones producing them. And hard rock zombies is one of those, but yeah, 85. I mean, this is a, this is a crazy film for them to get associated with and say, sure, we'll put our money behind it and put it out, out there to the world. I mean, this is, it's bananas. If you haven't seen it, um, I don't even know. I don't even know what to say, but um, <laughs> you know, you can listen to the episode, I guess. Yes. Yeah, I, guess, Check out I'm, Laser
1: Graves for sure. Check out uh, their breakdown of it, and it's it's a good time as always.
2: Yeah, I mean,
0: I like the idea that a movie was made out of the fake movie within a movie thing. Uh, that's okay. I'm in. Like, what you're having fun <laughs> making the fake movie, and you made a real movie out of it. Um, yeah, I could pro- I could probably get into that.
2: <laughs> You know what's funny though is our conclusion was, um, yeah, it could have just stayed a twenty-minute film. I don't think it needed to be <laughs> right. an hour and a half. But hey, I'm not complaining because we got Hard Rock Zombies because of it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I, I will have to check out that episode, or at least try to find my own copy at, of Hard Rock Zombies. Yeah. Uh, once the stores open up, once the rental stores open up. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like your video tech.
1: Oh, yeah, video tech is ready, ready. Whenever they can come back, we'll be there. Um, 1986, we're, we're, we've We're got a lot, we've got more of the same happening and then some new faces as well. Uh, like like you were saying, EK, I think this is probably their biggest year between 85 and 86. That was definitely the prime.
2: Well, not only because of the films that were coming out, there's a couple big, big heavy hitters in here, but also this is when they started really buying up everything they were buying up theaters and other companies worldwide i mean they bought thorny mi which is a a big company out of you know england they were so they then had their catalog to be distributing and stuff and i this is this was a big step for them i think it was bold but i also think it was overstretching what they were capable of managing
1: absolutely yeah i mean they bought they bought, you know, theater chains. They bought, uh, you know, an office building in L.A., like an entire building. And uh, it's, yeah, they were really, really using the profits that they had, <laughs> for sure. Um, but you've got a couple of Charles Bronson movies. You've got Murphy's Law. You've got Assassination. You know, again, rinse and repeat with with Bronson. Bronson uh, on the cover of your poster with a gun. Boom. There it is. <laughs> And uh, you've got a couple of Chuck movies. Uh, Has anyone seen Firewalker? Yeah, I have. It's actually really cool. (laughs) I haven't seen it in forever. I just remember a scene with, like, Chuck Norris and Lou Gossett Jr. where they're, like... Are they, like, tied down in the sand or something at one part?
2: Yeah, I haven't seen it in a few years, but I remember the last time I saw it, I, I did enjoy it. I thought it was a fun one.
1: It's like... It's another, like, Indiana Jones romancing the stone kind of movie, but this one works a little bit better than the Richard Chamberlain ones, right?
2: Yes. Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. Uh, But probably, I would say, besides missing in action, this uh, 1986 also has Chuck's biggest movie, which is The Delta Force. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I I love this movie. I, I'm intrigued that, you know, it was originally written to be, you know, Chuck meets meets Chuck. It's Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson together in a canon movie, which would have been the ultimate canon movie if only they had Dudikoff in it as well. <laughs> uh, but but uh, Charles Bronson actually turned it down and the role went to Lee Marvin. So, another you know, still got a great actor in there. But... Um, this movie is, you know, trying to capitalize on a real life, uh, the TWA Beirut hostage crisis and, you know, quickly trying to like, you know, mooch off of that and and throw Chuck Norris in who is going to run around and get revenge on on terrorists. Yeah.
2: And it's going to have a happy ending, too.
1: Yeah. And, and throw on a happy ending for sure. But it's got, you know, this is a, another, like, you can see that it's a bigger budget. It's, uh, you know, you have a, a, actually a great cast of actors in it. I mean, Lee Marvin, Shelly Winters, uh, Martin Balsam, George Kennedy. These are these are all, like, wow. named people. On top of, like, your usual, you know, you've got Steve James running around in there, too, as one of the Delta Force.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, who, this was um, directed also by... Um by, uh, what's by Golan by Golan yeah he yeah. he took this one on too
1: yep and and the pace of this movie like they shot it very quickly and you know uh, the other those other actors Shelley Winters in particular had a really hard time because those guys weren't used to like the movie's not about the performance we're not going to do you know 20 takes of getting the acting performance just right it's really about the action and the you know the plot what's going on on the plane which is also something i don't think you saw too much at that point of like what are the you know what are the what's actually going on in the, during the hostage situation like for the hostages and we get a lot of that in this movie. You spend a lot of time just you know you spend a lot of time with the delta force who are you know fighting back and tra- you know you got some action scenes of them trying to get to the 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 hostages and then what's ha- happening on the plane itself. And Oh, yeah, I didn't mention the late, great Robert Forster in one of his <laughs> strongest, in a weird way, performances.
2: Uh, yeah, this film holds play, up, too, you know?
0: There's a lot of people in this movie. Jeez, wow. <laughs> I didn't realize that with Forster in there.
1: It is, it's very, like, anti-Arab, very kind of right-wing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, you know, as a movie, yeah, it works. The action works, and... Chuck on a motorcycle. Yeah, I'm in for that. Yeah. And on top of that, Chuck on a motorcycle that fires missiles out backwards. Um, I'm definitely on board for that. (laughs) 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 Uh, But yeah, 1986, we've got, you know, we've got, we're all, again, all over the place with um, Highlander as another canon release this year. Who loves the movie Highlander?
0: Well, I like Highlander. I've seen I've Highlander. Seen I like Highlander. Yeah, and this is an interesting like one. Ones.
2: You know, another one that wasn't produced by Canon but was released by Canon. So they're they they do have their hands in all these like you know cookie jars. It's really interesting.
1: Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, we should do, we can do an entire episode on Highlander. I mean, that's that's a that's an episode to itself. But um, I, it. you know, I know a lot of people who don't. I've always loved Highlander, especially the first one. Really. Uh, and then it gets goes off the rails with the second one but um uh a lot of people don't don't have a lot of love for Highlander it's it just comes across uh, cheesy to them but I, I don't think so i love it
0: well highlander is an interesting piece because it 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 got sustained through the like that the the television series that that came later spin-off but i mean what it had technically 3 movies with Christopher Lambert uh, two movies with Sean Connery. Sean Connery coming back for that yeah. sequel with that bizarro storyline, which I did yeah. not expect. <laughs> I didn't know because I was a fan of the TV show with Adrian Paul, and then um, had, and had seen Highlander at some point. So as sort of this like connection, awareness of it. And then with my buddy Jason, uh, we rented Highlander two. I think we rented Highlander and Highlander two. And watch them both in the same night, like, and the fact that like Highlander two cre- makes them like these alien creatures that that come from a different planet is completely <laughs> bonkers. And I had yeah. no idea, like, what the fuck is happening here? Yeah. Like, I didn't. I was so mad. Like that doesn't even make sense. I'm so mad. Like it was funny at the time, but like, you know, from what everything I was aware of, like the TV show and the 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 original film. And then sort of, like, coalescing all into, like, with one night of Highlander action. Um, what? I was so I was so upset. Like, it didn't even make sense that, that Highlander 2 just even exists the way it is. It's a great way to bring Sean Connery back, sure. Um, but th- it's absolutely st- stupid. But Highlander, the original, I thought was well done and a lot yeah. of fun and not a great, like, setup to just sort of... I mean, just as a singular piece, I think I think actually is is pretty well done. Um, oh yeah, it's yeah.
1: it's well it's well shot. It's a cool story. It's got you know Sean Connery right before he really had his comeback, uh, and and it's got a great um, Queen soundtrack, which is amazing. Oh, Queen's sure amazing. Does. Like yeah.
0: Queen made it, and then Queen carried into into the series that they did with Adrian yep. Ball. So it was just like Queen continues like for for decades, you know, continue like as part of this series of things. Uh, uh, yeah, Highlander is this weird like sort of, uh, you know, genre adjacent, uh, you know, uh, cultural thing. Like I think it's, yeah. a, it's a lot of fun, like in, in terms of overall as a series from Highlander into all its later inca- uh, incarnations.
1: Yeah and uh they would also Canon would also release two movies from the you know the I guess you'd categorize them as horror movies uh EK I feel like you you know what I'm thinking right
2: Yeah, yeah well you know this is interesting 86 was just a huge year for Canon and it, as far as films that I like or films that I've seen and enjoy they they kind of all revolve around 86 because uh, we had a brief one that wasn't horror-related, but dipped into a genre that I really don't know they had ever done much of or since, which was post-apocalyptic, and that is, I mean, it, they had they had elements of it in the past, but this one was full-on. It's called America 3000, and I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. Um, oh. we, we covered this, too, because we, in Laser Graves, we do a lot of post-apocalyptic, and um, this one was a full canon release. And what's so fascinating mm-hmm. to me is in our episode, we were talking about how usually they take place in Italy or, um, you know, some the Philippines where they would shoot these right. films. This one was in Israel. And I was like, why in the world is it shot in Israel? And then when I found out it was a canon film and they're Israeli, there like go. <laughs> there's gotta be, that's gotta be the connection. Cause I was like, why in the world would they shoot? A post-apocalyptic film that's supposed to take place in Colorado, by the way, in Israel. <laughs> but this is a fun one. I, I I really enjoy this one. It's basically like men versus women. Women rule the world, and men are the servants. And it's a comedy, but it's really well done. Um, I it's worth a watch. I it hit me in the right time, the right place, and I I was charmed by it. I do like this film a lot, but it stands out as a little unique for canon because they didn't do this genre much. And um, to see this come up at this time was interesting. It was also directed by uh, David Engelbach, who had wrote um, Death Wish 2. He was the writer of of Death Wish 2. And also he wrote uh, Over the Top, which we'll talk about So this was, you know, (laughs) but he directed this one. So that was interesting. But then really the two big ones to get to are I had mentioned with life force, Toby Hooper had signed a three deal or three film deal. And I don't know if they really knew what they were getting into with him, but (laughs) life force was a huge flop. And then he followed that up with invaders from Mars in 86, which was a remake. And that had a $12 million budget. And it only made just under $5 million worldwide. So that also Ooh. was a flop. And what is crazy is it didn't matter because he still had another film in the bag. So he, you know, two strikes already. And then what he followed that up with the very same year was this powerhouse, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. And that was not a flop. That had a $4.7 million budget, but produced $8 million. And then has gone on to become an absolute staple Whoa. in the horror community. I mean, this is an oh, yeah. I- iconic film. You got Dennis Hopper doing way over the top, Dennis Hopper. I mean, this is the most Dennis Hopper. And what cracks me up about this is that he later said, you know, this is the worst movie he ever did. Okay, well, whatever. Um, I would I would like to whisper into his ear, uh, Not true. Super yeah. Super Mario Brothers. But I, I won't. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so... Toby Hooper, you know, you got Tom Savini doing the effects. Tom Savini is yeah. A-list special effects, you know, guy for horror movies. So it was a crazy year for for Canon and to have these three films come out so different. One is post-apocalyptic, one sci-fi, and one is straight up horror. I, it, it Really, I think it speaks volumes to, like I said earlier, the risk that they're willing to take.
1: Yeah, and Texas Chainsaw 2 is such an interesting movie and again one that I'm probably both of us will cover uh, in the future, but it's not what you think of when you think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre because it really is it's a lot more of a comedy this 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 particular movie than the first one was and and you know even the promotion of it I remember as a kid seeing the poster of the, you know, Leatherface and his family posed exactly like the Breakfast Club.
2: Yeah. And they did that on purpose. Uh, and, uh, yeah. canon didn't even know that that was happening. Like they, they weren't in on the right. joke. And they, yeah, they thought they were getting a follow up to one of the greatest horror movies ever created. And they didn't. They didn't get that. You know, this was a huge deal to bring back Toby Hooper to do a, a sequel to to the legendary and iconic texas chainsaw massacre and this is what they got and you know i think horror fans have really grown to love it over the years for its campiness but this was not this didn't make uh canon happy however it worked and it still even though it wasn't a huge success it was definitely a success and for toby hooper this was his most successful film with canon for sure
0: what is it about horror movies and action movies that if they're not done well or they're done as best as they can they're basically comedies like that people regard them as like well this is it's really funny though so i mean is it is there an achievement or is there a level of like uh competence that like as long as it is funny it's good or (laughs) you know you you know what I'm saying like I'm not sure how to to put this because I'm not a fan of the horror genre and I'm not a fan of like action that is kind of the canon canon films version of action that it's it's like well like yeah things can be funny but like things can be things should be funny because they intended to be funny not because we're enjoying them in a I not I don't want to say ironic way but just what what you know, what what's so great about them if they're bad? You know what I mean?
1: Uh, so Well this no Texas Chainsaw Two was the intention was to be more comical. Yeah,
0: so that
2: yeah. so that's yeah. that's built in. It was. It was a dark comedy for sure. I mean, that was the intention from day one. But I think that Cannon didn't realize that Toby Hooper was going to do that Uh, because Texas Chainsaw 1 is 100% not a comedy. I mean, it's a really intense, serious, (laughs) gritty film. And to follow that up with this really over-the-top performances and goofiness, um, it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And it was a big risk. But in my opinion if you think as a horror fan canon films you immediately it's texas chainsaw 2 that is the definitive horror film that canon put mm-hmm. out there is no greater yeah. film that they ever released that would compare to that in the horror genre ever
0: wow Holy yeah shit. it's
1: it's fun david i actually think you would you would like it. it it's there there's a lot to there's a lot to like about this movie
0: okay yeah i mean maybe <laughs> um, but ni-
1: 1986 uh, Also is the beginning of another deal With a You know they've they've been A lot of these movies They've been coming out They've got name actors in them Like Chuck and Charles Bronson But you know They really wanted to get to that next level And that A-list level And to do that you need a megastar And they got one with Sylvester Stallone They signed him to a deal uh, He didn't really He wasn't really interested in working with them but they just threw more and more money at him till he kind of said screw it. <laughs> yeah. And uh Cobra was born which was actually born out of Beverly Hills Cop if you can believe it. Um <laughs> originally Stallone was supposed to be the lead in Beverly Hills Cop and Holy you know Stallone's shit. always taken a, a huge creative involvement in his films like it, very rarely was he just an actor in a movie. He also got involved with the script and the creative direction and eventually the deal with Paramount for Beverly Hills Cop fell apart, but he took the remnants of that deal and morphed it into what would become Cobra.
2: It's interesting to think, you know, they were trying so hard too to get him to to raise the stakes of canon and they would go to great lengths even further after this that we'll see, but I, it's interesting to put all your hopes and dreams on certain actors and think that you can catch that lightning in the bottle, and if it worked once, it's going to work again, you know, and I, I mm-hmm.
3: it's
2: kind of depressing in a way because they had all these high hopes, and time and time again it kind of didn't work out for them uh, but they kept trying they kept trying over and over yeah, but it makes I, sense I, you want yeah. to
0: go, you, Sly, I mean if you're going to go after somebody in 1985 1986, Sly is a perfect person to go after, right? like, I mean, he's that. that oh yeah, I mean Honestly, I didn't know when I'd seen Cobra a couple of years ago for the first time, although I had seen parts of it as a child or whatever, um, but to watch it front to back, not realizing it's a Cobra, it's a Canon film um, and I'm laughing at it and it's a, it's a little, it's just a little crazy and, but it seems so perfectly eighties that I don't know. It, 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 it almost fits the entire like era, I think without necessarily being Canon as well I, I don't know i mean it is canon but it seems also just 80s kind of yeah cheese, cheese factor or action uh you know the, that well yeah and I, th-
1: I think a lot of that is stallone you know his yeah. involvement keeping it at that level and uh you know this is stallone right right after rocky 4 right after rambo 2 so he was really in his prime i love cobra cobra is one of my one of my <laughs> low key like favorite action movies of the 80s. I can watch that at any moment. It's so yeah. much fun.
0: Yeah, Cobra is not bad. Yeah, I like I, I kind of like it. And it's got a
2: great cover. Oh my
1: god, that, yeah. <laughs> uh, great cover, great tagline. I can't wait to really do a deep dive on that movie, but uh Detective Marion Cobretti uh, went pretty far in our in our uh, '80s cop tournament. Didn't quite make it all the way, but uh, <laughs> I think he fun. was taken down. I think he was taken down by Axel Foley. So Ooh. it came full circle for Stallone.
2: Interesting. That was that was a good time, by the way. That was fun to do
1: that. <laughs> we got more coming. So good. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, as we we talked about, '86 was was '85 uh, '86, such huge years. Uh, but they 're spending left and right they at this point they they lost they actually lost ninety million dollars between eighty five and eighty six between all their all their business ventures, not just even though you 've got some movies that are big hits they 're not enough to keep you know from what they 're spending and they actually start getting investigated by the s e c and you know they 've got huge overheads and and not that many profits. So it's kinda of the beginning of the end already, but as we're heading into nineteen eighty seven.
2: Yeah, and what's an interesting choice is you know, and this is kind of time and time again what happens is instead of making the right decision and saying maybe we should start toning our films back down, you know, to what worked for us in the early years when we were really getting by just fine, Golan just goes, Let's go bigger and better, you know, let's just spend more and more money and something yeah. something will work. And I feel like this is just when you're you're just trying anything you're desperate you're ignoring the problem and you're just literally throwing money at it and hoping and i do think that post 86 is where canon starts to just go off the rails and lose oh yeah lose kind of sight of what made canon successful for those first few years you know that wildly successful actually uh they just absolutely they just got too caught up they they got too caught up in in themselves and um made a series of errors right after this that would be their ultimate downfall.
1: Yeah. I mean they do uh before we get to the big risks they they do, you know, go back to keep going back to the well. You've got Charles Bronson with Death Wish 4, you've got uh Chuck Norris in Missing in Action 3, which is uh, you know, I I I remember Missing in Action 3 being the the worst of the uh trilogy there. <laughs> um you've got your attempts at, you know, Oscar level movies and respectability, uh, you know, being respectable with a Jean-Luc Godard film, King Lear. You've got Barfly, which is a a great Mickey Rourke uh, film with Ellen Barkin. And uh, you've got Street Smart, which is like one of my favorite movies with a very young Morgan Freeman and Christopher Reeve. Yeah, oh, that's right. that's a, that's street a legit street That's
0: good stuff.
2: <laughs> that's a yeah, no, they, I like street smart. That's They a, were that's that's right. distributing like interesting yeah. films at this like time too in 87. This wasn't on the list um of things, you know, that maybe we discuss, but it's one that's interesting to me is I really enjoy um kind of sword and sorcery films and stuff like that too and they did not produce, but they distributed a film called Gore. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. They're, oh, yeah. 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 So they did Gore and the, you know, Outlaw of Gore, but Gore in 87 comes out. And I just think it's a really cool film. Uh Again, taking a risk with something. And so there are these flashes of times where I think like, okay, this is what Canon should have been doing at this time. And um they, they just didn't, they didn't follow suit. But, you know, what? Yeah. what can you do?
1: Yeah. Um, you know the, they didn't forget about young Michael Dudikoff. He's still hanging around with American Ninja Two, which is, uh, I think, more fun than than American Ninja One, but not quite Avenging Force level. <laughs> uh, another fun movie, mm. '80s movie, you know '80s at its best in a way. With David, your favorite film, Mannequin.
0: <laughs> Mannequin, <laughs> yes the the. the 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 drama of of 1980s (laughs) philadelphia retail uh mixed in with uh, mysticism and (laughs) and you know uh identity existentialism yeah like that i i think the premise is like the 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 fact that she becomes alive as a mannequin is because she becomes alive uh at the most interesting time in the world which is 1980s philadelphia and and right and what the right fuck in the hands are you of about? andrew mccarthy <laughs> but with estelle getty mcandrew mccarthy estelle getty um yeah i'm in like um i'm absolutely i the, i the I score mannequin to mannequin
1: a, a is deal. like one of my favorite movie scores of all time just tugs the heartstrings you know
0: sure yeah i mean especially when you've got mishak taylor and you've got Kim Cattrall. Oh, yeah, you got Spader. Uh, I think James Spader's in that movie, too. Like, uh, Spader's <laughs> in there. I mean, listen, Mannequin is, yeah. to me, pure 80s. That, that's that's one of my top 80s films, at least 80s, late, yeah. uh, late 80s. I mean, it's 87. But, but then we've know, got... Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. We'll go ahead. Meshach Taylor plays a, 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 a flamboyant <laughs> guy named Hollywood. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah.
1: Uh we, yes. we've got three anyway, you know, but then we've got uh, three big risks that really don't pay off and, and start to bring down bring down the company. Um I'll talk about the first, which is over the top, the other Stallone Canon film, which is just a bizarre mm-hmm. movie. I mean, it's like you can tell Stallone's trying because you've got the montages and you've got that you know, really trying to come from the heart story and with this family reuniting that he was good at working those kind of angles. But unfortunately, the plot was about arm wrestling (laughs) and just not an area that enough people cared about. It was almost like he was trying to like do like a Hulk Hogan, WWF kind of thing, but it just, it didn't have the theatrics of it. Just centering it around this absentee dad who's been, you know, gone from his kid's life for ten years and uh, and the arm wrestling, it's like there wasn't enough to really get behind. Um so this was a big big miss. I remember a bit like the posters being everywhere. Great poster, by the way, but uh as usual with canon. But I didn't you know, I missed the movie and then never yeah. saw it till actually re- fairly recently. Oh yeah. Yeah. In oh, fact I do it. own it, I'll admit it. <laughs> oh okay. <laughs>
2: Well, and well, it was on a, what it was f- on a set with Demolition Man. <laughs> you <okay>? bought it. <laughs> oh, dude, you Demolition own both Man. of them. Demolition Man rules. Demolition Man <laughs> and Over the Top. <laughs> what the hell?
0: <laughs> I love Demolition Man. It's fine. Like we are living oh, in oh, a yeah. place where the three seashells yeah. are probably oh, going to oh, be yeah. invented in the next like three months. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> I, it, it's funny, though, because I it's it's hard for me as someone who doesn't care about sports in any way. Like I'm like literally where we're at in the 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 current climate of things. I'm like, what's it like <laughs> to miss sports? Like, I don't know what that is, you know, because but apparently there's I'm sure there's millions of people that miss sports. Um, so for me, over the top is, is kind of like Rocky at Rocky Light. You know, it's. It's this minor kind of thing. Like, there's a story about a guy uh, with familial ties, you know, so it's about his kid or whatever. But, like, I don't even care about the the sports part of it, in a sense. Not that I – I mean, I haven't seen over the top in years, but, I mean, I would say 25 years. So, I kind of – as a kid, I was like, this is kind of fine. Not now. You know, (laughs) I mean – and
3: you yeah, just, it just, is it is it, it really it that bad? Because I can't it doesn't imagine have the fun like fun stuff that Cobra
1: a, had and Demolition Man, Cliffhanger, which we talked yeah. about, and you know, it's it's that's missing some things. There's not enough yeah. act. there's there's not really any action.
0: Yeah. I guess I mean I yeah, I guess you can't really dramatize an arm wrestling match all that much. I do remember like Stallone's kid or whatever, like getting bullied by some kid and he's like i'm gonna challenge yeah. you in an arm wrestling match because like, oh, that's yeah, yeah. what happens like in the yeah. in a random diner or cafe like get arm wrestling match like that's what happens in the 80s i feel like the, but i do feel like this kind of popularized sure. arm wrestling among children where it, which definitely i did a lot of, lot of arm wrestling as a kid in the 80s and i and i lost a lot but I feel <laughs> you know I feel like this is like this is kind of part and parcel of that uh, yeah. Well it didn't help at the box time. office. I don't at all. know. No. I don't know if it But didn't it make more money than it than it cost? I mean it, was, no, it wasn't No, but it wasn't it wasn't failure, the hit right? that I mean, they it wasn't a expected it to right? be. But
1: I mean Cobra was huge and you know, Cobra made like fifty million dollars over the yeah. top did not did not approach that.
2: Uh, the other thing, too, is that it, uh, not, it was there was a, gotcha. a double whammy yeah. is one was the subject matter. of Nobody cares about arm wrestling, Two is yeah. to get Stallone to do this. I don't remember what the number was, but what they paid him was just outlandish to get him to come back. Yeah. So their budget uh, for yeah. this was so misguided if they would have cast any other person on this role. They would have made a lot of money, but they spent all their money just trying to get him to do this, you know, random weird film about arm wrestling.
1: There was there was one answer that was right under their nose due to yeah, of course. (laughs) Uh, But this was this wasn't even their biggest. You know, they had two other big problems on their hand uh, that year, which was the next one is Superman four was it the, the the quest for peace
3: yeah ooh the quest for wow. peace
1: wow yeah it, it's such a far cry from you know the richard donner superman movies that i mean it, it's boy had they fallen far off
2: this is just sad this is just one of those moments when you say you know like you just gotta know when to call it and this is something they shouldn't have done Well, it's one of
1: those that like, yeah, exactly. They, they shouldn't, they shouldn't have, they cut the budget during, during production here. So if you're not going to put enough money into like the visual effects and the special effects, you can't do a movie, a superhero movie, much less one about Superman.
2: No. And you know, what's crazy too, is this film has two kind of different feelings for me because when I was a kid watching it, I didn't really think about all that stuff. I was like, cool. It's a Superman movie. And, you know, it is what it is. I remember it not being maybe as good as the others, but I didn't really think about it too Mm -hmm. much. But then when you're an adult and you work in movies and stuff like that, you start to think about the kind of sadness around this film in the way it relates to the first three is like, oh, man, what a bummer, because Mm. it is entertaining. But the only lasting effect of part four now is for pure amusement because of how, how bad it is. And that's not a good legacy to have.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah I mean you know they've got the the effects are bad the plot is not good you did get Gene Hackman back which was great you know you got Christopher Reeve you got Margot Kidder for a minute Um, you've got John Cryer who's definitely I don't know if he's at the height of his popularity but he's definitely like you know somewhere in his peak Um, but the story was just there was no real story not enough to care about and then when everything else is misfiring, I mean, I yeah, I remember too that seeing it in the theater and thought, like, oh, that was fun, not as good as one and two, but then it's like, and then I never even thought about it again till I was in college and then bought that Superman DVD box set and was like, whoa, I hated part three, but four was, wow, different level. <laughs> uh, but then, yeah.
0: Superman Ford is is weird that it opens too with like that like sort of absurdist like absurdist uh French or English kind of opening where th- like random things happen and and uh, disaster strikes and Superman is involved with yeah. it. It's a very it's a very strange opening. Like the the tone is set very early that this is not quite what you're <laughs> no, used to. This not is not your Richard Donner. It's kind John of an Stone. embarrassment, I think, um, for Christopher Reeve. But, I think uh,
1: he really was not happy with that. And that was the end of his Superman run.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that was it. But I mean, didn't it, I mean, Gollum and Gollus got him involved because he was able to produce another movie. And then he was able to convince Margot Kidder to come back and he convinced Gene Hackman to come back. And I mean, yeah, it's really, yeah. it really rested on his shoulders, I think to, to make this movie happen, um, which I think it was like, I think it's kind of that thing like which is I think a pattern of, of of canon which is um you know talking it up kind of finding the 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 right kind of energy to like this is a mo- we can do this this is a movie we can do and then you know we'll do other movies together or we'll do these other projects and come like let's just do this this will be fine so I mean the fact that like I don't know that they all came back to do this and it's mm-hmm. a it's kind of a shrug to everything else. It's kind of fascinating. And when you're a kid, you don't know any of that, and then that's what you're given. You know, after Superman one and two, and three is like a, but you know, and even f- so, then four is just sort of this like, uh, what do you call it? Like a um, it's 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 just it's just it's just a little offering. It's a little like, all right, well here here's a la- last bit of yeah. like. Here's the last bit we'll give yeah. you, but you can always yeah. watch those Tough. other two movies. I don't know. Um, uh, but yeah, this is definitely something I'm familiar with. And as a kid, I, I kind of enjoyed it, but I mean it no, it's not it's not good. It doesn't even make sense. Like the whole movie's
1: well, and you know trash. <laughs> that was Superman wasn't even their biggest misfire of eighty of eighty-seven. It really would be Masters of the Universe. Uh EK uh, you've gotta have some thoughts on, on this one.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was like diehard He Man fan growing up. Yeah. I have all my toys are like still here. My daughters play with with my uh Master of the Universe figures almost daily. They actually combine them with my WWF figures that I still have, and I have the rings. Nice. So they'll often have um He Man versus WWF. But Master of the Universe mm. was a huge deal when it came out, and I remember Yeah, I'm sure everybody, every especially boy at that time was so jazzed about it. And then we all saw it and we kind of made the most of it that we could, because as for me, I was happy to have a film that had He-Man in it, but it was not the film I was hoping for. And this film is just completely bonkers. I mean, I don't know when the last time it was that you guys saw this, but the plot's just ridiculous it's over the top the acting's over the top but what was the most insane was the budget this is the most expensive film that canon ever made and to think that this yeah. is what they put all their money into makes zero sense and speaks kind of volumes to where their headspace was at you know professionally speaking because they spent 22 million dollars on keep in mind this is a company that just 7 years prior wouldn't break a million 2 million was kind of yeah. out of the question and in 7 years they're now spending 22 million dollars on Masters of the Universe and it only it made 17 million worldwide which seems like a lot but is nothing compared to the potential that it could have made like nope you know this could have been their blockbuster and it failed just miserably so it's interesting it was directed by this guy gary goddard and that was his surprise his first and only film (laughs) so yeah uh you know we had the uh really muscly um and uh poor speaking english dolf lundgren he 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 had it in his contract that he had three tries to do voiceovers to get his English right because he couldn't do it. And eventually they just said, whatever, we'll just go with however he talks. So that's what you got. Um,
1: well, and Stallone, apparently uh, there's a story how Stallone came to visit the set one day and then went to Golan and Globus and they're like, uh, you gave this guy dialogue? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You also have a very young
2: Courtney Cox, which is interesting. <laughs> this was like her big breakthrough. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's got a good cast overall, but it's the screenplay was co-written. This is the craziest part, too. It's like, well, where did it go wrong to, to start with? The screenplay was originally written by this guy, David O'Dell, who had done a lot of films. But the, the big one that he had done for me anyway was The Dark Crystal. So he was mm-hmm. like he knew his stuff. But then what ended up happening is the director, Gary, who had never done anything. This is the first film he had ever done. He had only um, done a screenplay like once before, did a whole rewrite of it. And I'd have to imagine that that's where a lot of this just falls apart, is that the production, they started cutting costs. You know, Skeletor originally, Mm -hmm. his mask was supposed to be like really cool, special effects heavy. And by the end, they just went with like a cheesy, you know, rubber mask, basically. And so... Yeah, I just it all kind of started to, to just become a train wreck, and this really is the nail in the coffin of canon. in In most ways, this is they they spent way too much money on a film that did not deliver. It's it's kind of a sad story, honestly.
1: It really is. I mean, it's. It, I remember when I saw it, I was like, "Was that supposed to be funny?" Because I feel like it wasn't supposed to be, but it was. And now I'm just sad. <laughs>
0: I can't imagine it was funny. I I seen most of. I think I seen most of it, but I was not a He Man fan back in the day. So I was more your Ninja Turtles guy. I didn't like He Man. I didn't like. I didn't like GI Joe. All that shit. So, th- but then you know this is part of the culture. So it, it was something I'd seen, but certainly this movie was not something I enjoyed.
2: <laughs> I kind of enjoyed it because I was such a big He Man fan, but I was really disappointed. Honestly, I was like, this is not. The movie I was hoping for. And it had a pretty huge effect on canon. Not only did it just kind of screw them over financially, but there was already a part two in the works and it had gone far. I don't know. I don't know if you've ever read up on this, but it's pretty crazy is that it, the part two was going to take place. It was called Master of the Universe Part Two Cyborg. And it was being written by um, Albert Pinyon, who had already done a bunch of canon films He actually did a non-canon film that I really love called Vicious Lips that we covered on Laser Graves. But he was this guy who had, he wrote this whole script and he was gonna, he pitched to them that he would do part two and Spider-Man because they had the rights to Spider-Man. And all the sets were built, the costumes were made, the entire cast was done. And then this film was just a massive flop. And they were like, there's no way we can afford to do this. And the interesting thing is, that what Albert did was took the script for Master of the Universe Part Two, reworked it, and that's what became Cyborg, which is <laughs> an awesome film. But to think that that started as originally as Master of the Universe Holy Part Two is is kind of mind blowing to me.
1: Yeah, it's that's such a great story, and that you know they had signed a deal with uh, with Mattel and Marvel and. You know, they were going to they were they had a lot of big plans and all of it was was hinging on uh, Masters of the Universe being a hit. So when it wasn't, it was it really was the uh, I, I guess I guess they would limp along a little further, but it was the nail in the coffin for sure. Um Yeah, that uh, not being able to do Spider-Man was huge. Um and we'll we'll get to that in a minute. But yeah, this this leads right into 1988 and 89. With you know, as you talked about with Cyborg, we get Jean Claude Van Damme as kind of their last star that they signed. And I didn't realize that Bloodsport, Kickboxer, and Cyborg were all canon films.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I I didn't realize that until yeah, you know, I know like that. I like you said, I have a, a or I mean, like I said, I have a, a VHS collection. So when you put them all together in the van damme collection you see the logos and you're like oh okay (laughs) so uh, yeah and it it is interesting to think (laughs) about how cyborg came to be because originally again this was directed by albert who also had done another canon film in 88 called alien from la with um, kathy ireland but (laughs) you know he he's this guy who had he had some pretty cool films under his belt, sword and sorcerer, doll man, you know, he did arcade, these full moon films. Um, you know, he would do those a little bit later, but he was a competent director and it's just interesting to think he, he did cyborg from this adaptation of he-man and it was actually a really dark film. And then they said, no, you know, we need to tone it down and make it more kind of palatable for our audience. And I'm really interested. I don't know if this exists or not, but the original cut of cyborg I would love to see a like dark and gritty version.
1: Oh, me too. Yeah, that would be. I don't know if that does exist, but that'd be that'd be a cool uh, thing to track down.
2: Right
0: now, Cyborg is streaming on your mm. on <laughs> yeah. HBO and Hulu. <laughs> so, if you were, as of this recording, it might it, as a in, in when we release. The, well, okay, we're it's late April when we're recording. If in in May, it <laughs> yeah. could possibly still be on these services. So when we released this episode so it's uh keep your eyes out cyborg the original cut made a lot of money actually wow yeah you're not kidding it it was it was produced very cheaply and then made a lot of money
1: yeah and i think well i think part of that was you know with a a fresh star like jean-claude van damme i mean he was huge in the early 90s and 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 all three of these movies i remember were you know I think people our age loved them. I mean, my uh, my friend Eamon and I loved Kickboxer and Bloodsport. Cyborg I didn't get into till later, but but yeah, had a lot of. It was kind of like a throwback to like yeah. what worked in the mid '80s with like maybe a better version of American Ninja. You know, like what that could have been. Yeah, <laughs> but you know they were still they really just limped through those, those last couple of years with. Uh, you know, they, they still had their deals with their guys. Chuck Norris was still around. He released a *Hero* and the, the Hero and the Terror. Uh, Dudikoff put out a few movies with Platoon Leader and River of Death. Uh, they did put out American Ninja 3 without Dudikoff. They would correct that mistake with American Ninja 4. Um, but, <laughs> but this was, you know, this was the end of, you know, Golan and Globus together as Canon Films, you know, as, as they would hit bottom here and they were losing all this money and um, having all these creative problems and now losing out on Spider-Man was a, was just a big thing. Um, they ended up splitting up when a, another uh, investor named Giancarlo Peretti uh, came in and bought a stake in Canon and it kind of helped... Divide the two of them, and uh, Globus ended up going uh, well, I guess staying with Peretti, staying with canon films Golan would be would leave and uh make twenty first century films, I think was the name of his company and uh mm-hmm. and he would end up doing Captain America, which is another one of their projects they had in the pipeline with Marvel, but this time as a straight to video movie and and nowhere like nothing i mean it was not a hit it was almost a forgotten movie that even happened
2: yeah and keep in mind too that canon at this time had sold off you know basically all of their other properties their theaters Mm -hmm. and their other distributing or distribution companies throughout the you know the world like they were just sucking wind and trying to pay the bills at this point
1: yeah they would uh uh, canon would hold the rights, which they eventually went back to Sony, which would become the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. But you could trace the timeline of that back to Canon. Actually, um, they, the the cousins would have competing competing Lombada films in 1990. Which do you, does anyone remember that craze? Lombada, the forbidden <laughs> dance. <laughs> Oh yeah, the Lombada. Oh my god! It. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. So they actually <laughs> made competing movies uh, uh, that were released on the same day and undercut the audience. And you know, neither was a hit. But maybe if they had, you know, either worked together or one of them backed off, that that the other one would be a hit. Who knows? Uh, They would continue. Uh, Cannon's name would continue on throughout the early '90s, but. No real hits anymore, and their last major release was was actually a Chuck Norris movie called Hellbound oh. huh. so mm. yeah it's I guess it's fitting that their last God. movie was a Chuck one since he kind of helped carry the load for so long for them that's true, but uh I don't know yeah. you know the, a lot of their library went to some of it went to Warner Brothers, some of it went to m g m uh some kind of went into an abyss, which was like avenging force and and you know maybe we'll get into that when we cover that movie but um i don't know what do you what do you what do you guys think about the the lasting legacy when you think of canon now what 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 feelings does that bring up ek what what do you think
2: um i think that there are some some pretty amazing films that yeah i mean amazing in the terms of (laughs) like in the context of just enjoyable films that i have grown to love over the years that I I couldn't imagine not being able to watch or had not been made, but overall I think that the um, the statistics for them were not good. They were producing a lot of movies and a lot of those movies just were they were destined to fail from day one. And so the story of the of the cousins just being excited about making movies is really interesting, but I feel like. Uh, Canon could have actually succeeded and gone on still to this day had there just been maybe a little bit more control over them. And it wasn't just so intense where mm-hmm. they had final say regardless because they didn't always know what was right clearly. And so it's, it's kind of an absolute you know cautionary tale of too much, too quick. Like they should have yeah. just stuck with what they knew and they should have kind of done it in time as they grew naturally instead of just absorbing and absorbing, and absorbing, and then just blowing up. I mean, it's just a very classic tale. So I don't know. Canon for me as a, as a child of the eighties, I'll always love Canon films. It's not my favorite company, but it's also not my least favorite. They produce some films that I absolutely love. I just think it's more, their story is so fascinating because they were always yeah. the odd ones out always. They just never fit in where they were supposed to, but yet there they were at every party forcing their films down everybody's throat, you know? And yeah. uh, that is, that's the story of Canon.
1: Yeah. It's uh, a lot of lessons to be learned. Um, but yeah, when I, I, I still, I still have a lot of fun with their movies and maybe, I don't know, maybe that's not the legacy they would have wanted, but you know, I, there's a lot of them I can throw on and have a good time with, and you know what you're in for. And, uh, you know, like I said in the beginning, maybe not the mark of uh, the symbol of excellence, but <laughs> but I, I think it's a good time. Um, and I think that's what their legacy really is now is you're not going to take these movies super seriously. These are not Oscar level movies. But if you want to throw on an action movie and watch Chuck Norris or Charles Bronson or Dudikoff blow some guys away or some sweet ninja kicks to the face, uh, this is this is who you want to watch.
2: Yeah, Absolutely.
1: Uh David, how many canon films are you going to watch this week? 0.
0: I'm done. Uh <laughs> I don't need to see any more. I've seen all I need to see. This is fine. <laughs> Whatever it is, that's great. Like I, I you know. Um I mean, listen, I I I respect what they did. I mean as businessmen as as producers, understanding like they, you know, they wanted to create things, things that are entertaining, all that totally makes sense. Um yeah, for them more is more, you know, the, uh, instead of less is more. And, uh, in terms of just spewing out content, spewing out things like not having to take any particular attention to anything like to maybe make things better or improve upon like what is happening. So they were, they were, I, I get the, the idea of them as a, as a thing. And I think they are, um, you you could have you could have classes on filmmaking based on just the canon film way of things you know like you could you can teach people how to produce or you know like
1: based on what Well it's a lesson of kind of what not to do in a way.
0: Yeah, I mean I think you can you scale back what they did and if you scaled back down into finding the quality projects and making the things but I mean the fact that like they were pitching things that didn't exist scripts that didn't exist movies that Weren't weren't even in, in the thought just to make sure they can get investors. I mean, there's a there's a whole level of um, You know trying to basically secure people other people's money to make things that You know, they didn't even know existed and there's there's kind of a, a weird like I don't want to put a more a Morality stake on the whole thing, but I mean really they're you know, they are salesmen they're 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 liars or at least You know, uh, making things up as they went along, and Mm -hmm. um, and as much as they, I'm sure they're great personalities. And I think if I was in the room with them and they were like pitching shit to me, I'd be like, "Yes, yeah, that sounds amazing. Let's do it." You're saying it's going to be the greatest. I believe it's going to be the greatest. Like people didn't follow them because um, they thought they would make. uh, Well, people follow them because of their personalities, who they were. I mean. It's about salesmanship. It's about that personality. It's about people who you want to be in a room with and uh, having a glass of champagne with. I mean, I, that's how they sold mm-hmm. half of these things. So, I get that to the, to a certain point. But I mean, the quality and the output and understanding that they didn't have a lot of money to make these things, and they certainly didn't have the the time and attention to make things that maybe could have used it. Um, but I get it. It's, it's, it's an entertaining uh, segment of filmmaking um, and sort of, a, 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 like you said, a cautionary tale into what it takes to make a film in Hollywood uh, and certainly something that, that needs to resonate through a, a global audience.
1: Well, you know, you know, as we said, it's a lot of lessons to be learned and certainly an interesting uh, career and retrospective on the the life and death of canon films. And uh, E.K., it was super fun to have you here this week. I would I would love to uh, connect again down the road. We can we can find the right movie that fits both of our genres, you know?
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, it was this was a blast. This was a lot to take on, but it's also just a fascinating story. I don't think you can do this with many other film, you know, companies and have this mm-hmm. kind of this kind of history and story that's this compelling. So regardless of the quality of films and stuff, I do think it's just a it's it's like it's a movie by itself, the story of Canon. Yeah.
1: Hey, maybe we should write that.
2: <laughs> yeah, there yeah. you go.
1: <laughs> the, the, the Golan and Golden Globus
2: the Globan and Glow story.
1: <laughs> but but first we we need to we need to work on avenging force too. So uh, yeah, that'll be, get, that'll be next up.
2: Get, get DudaKoff on the phone. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm so glad you're here, EK. Uh, this was uh, yeah, this was great to like talk with both of you about who know these things way more than me, and uh, to really get an insight to what what this was about. I mean, I I get that in the sense I don't want to be so dismissive uh, in my dismissiveness,
3: <laughs> but. Um, <laughs>
0: I I understand like hearing it from both of you um, makes me understand like the love of it or at least the perpetuation of uh, that cult following. So, you know, that is that's something that they didn't intend, Um, but certainly you can't reproduce on purpose
1: yeah and uh, a lot of the movies we talked about you know were covered on ek's podcast laser graves which uh i highly recommend as yeah. we do every week uh definitely check out his show Ek. what do you got uh what what's some of the most recent episodes that you have
2: oh man you got me on the spot i'd have to think <laughs> well we you know i talked about a couple of them we did uh hard rock zombies We just did Warriors of the Wasteland, which is an Italian post-apocalyptic film. You know, we just do, we do really obscure, low-budget stuff that makes us laugh and is entertaining, and, uh, you know, we never quite know. We're, We're not ones to plan out week to week. We kind of, I have basically a video store in, you know, in my home, so you can come peruse the shelves and just pick what you're in the mood to watch it's very much feels like an (laughs) old-fashioned 80s video store and whatever we're in the mood for that week is what we cover but it's it's been a lot of fun you know we just we have a sense of what what we like to talk about and what what our listeners like to hear and it's an acquired taste it's eclectic for sure but you know it keeps us laughing through through every episode and that's what that's what matters
1: Awesome. yeah and it's it's a great show and it's your guy's personality that also you know whether you are familiar with or know or love the movies it's you know you guys uh draw draw everybody in and uh you know i I highly recommend it. I love the space mutiny episode
2: oh yeah, that was a good one that was a, <laughs> boy that was something can i can
0: I ask the and then because i i am not i don't watch i don't listen to every single episode. What's the origin of the name Laser Graves? What is that?
2: Well, we knew we wanted to do, uh, you know, an 80s podcast. We wanted to focus, you know, specifically on the 80s. And we Mm -hmm. were just thinking about uh, names and we didn't want something that was too indicative of a certain genre. And we were like, well, what is... What's really, you know, what we're going to be discussing in general. And we thought, well, we love sci-fi and post-apocalyptic and all this stuff. So that's really lasers. Like when you think of 80s (laughs) fonts, you know, like synth (laughs) wave stuff, everything's got to be lasers for the 80s. And then we thought about, well, we're we're both diehard horror fans, and we knew we'd be leaning really heavy on the darker stuff. So we thought, well, wouldn't it be funny to just combine it and make it, uh, you know, Laser Graves sounds like a very it. '80s thing. So that's where the name nice. came from. Yeah. yeah.
1: Great. Um, and where it. can where can they uh, where can they find you guys?
2: Uh, we're anywhere you get your podcasts. You know, we're on Apple and Spotify and Podbean, all that kind of stuff. So anywhere you can get a podcast, you can find us at Laser Graves. We're on Instagram. That's our social media, Laser Graves. So, yeah, I mean, definitely check us out. It's really fun. Like I said, you know, we don't get paid to do this. This is just something we do on the side because we love talking about crazy, cheesy movies. You know, if it makes us laugh, hopefully it makes you laugh, too.
1: So you do it for the same reasons Golan and Globus made movies. The love yeah, the love of it.
2: Totally. Yeah, we make a lot of bad decisions, but it's but the heart is there.
1: <laughs> and, you, and you're not losing millions of dollars every week
2: so. <laughs> no no, just a lot of sleep and hours of editing
1: <laughs> yeah all, all. well cool well yeah everybody should uh, you know check that out and you can check out our podcast as well anywhere uh, you know you listen to podcasts Podbean Stitcher Spotify uh, Apple Podcasts uh, and don't forget to give both of our shows a rating and review uh, really helps us out you can check us out at Podcast on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You know, always drop us a line there and uh, we'd love to hear feedback on what you think about this episode. And uh, with that, uh, thank you for coming on, EK. We look forward to hearing your theme music again next week. And uh, (laughs) we uh, look forward to chatting with you down the road. And we will see you guys next time on ReconCinemation for yet another canon uh, film that we're going to look at. So stay tuned.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Bye now.